Call the police. Tell the sheriff I shot him. Is this some kind of joke? I've been trick-or-treated to death tonight. You don't know what death is. Hello, folks, and welcome to a special Fear What I Fear franchise deep dive. We will be channeling our horror roots and going down the hole of Halloween, Michael Myers, Laurie Strode, Sam Loomis, and everything in between. And we're not just going to be doing it alone. We are bringing on a special guest today, a person who might like Halloween more than me, which I've never met before, so I'm so (laughs) excited to talk about it. We are here with my friend Josh from the Victims and Villains podcast. How you doing, Josh? What's going on, man? It is uh, a pleasure to be here with you, and I guess we'll find out over the next couple hours who who truly likes this franchise a little bit more. Yeah, I'm intimidated. I've gone my whole <laughs> life of always being the weirdo who is obsessed with Halloween amongst people who are like, yeah, this first one's pretty good. I don't know. I don't really check it out too often, but... I mean, you and I were we're pretty new friends still. You know, we met yeah. over uh, over the podcast. You're, you're kind of like my first real podcast friend, which is awesome. Um, we've been on your show before discussing Good Burger, so we had to return the favor and have you back on our show. Um, but why don't you just uh, tell the listeners a little bit about kind of what you do, Victims and Villains, sure. and what do you got going on? Uh, Victims and Villains is a nonprofit and uh, publication that produces podcasts and movie reviews, Twitch streaming, and YouTube's. Uh, videos as well to educate and engage individuals on mental health awareness and suicide prevention through pop culture. So over the years, we've done this through just a array of different things. I host three of our podcasts, uh, host the Victims and Villain, which is more like a variety show. Um, so you can get anything from video games to people's recovery stories depression stories, almost suicide attempts kind of stories, uh, comedies like Good Burger. Um, we've done watch series on Watchmen before, um, but I also host a horror podcast called Abyss Gazing, uh, which looks at just different horror throughout the genre, and we've done everything from musicals like The Wicker Man to we just recently had uh, the writer of The Old Ways, which is a Netflix film, on and I also host a Nicolas Cage podcast called That's High Praise. <laughs> that one might be my personal favorite. <laughs> I love the Nick Cage podcast. Recently, like Nicolas Cage has been like a year long like development project. It feels weird to say that, but it it's true. So like it started off as like this like uh, random idea that we were gonna do, then a Patreon joke, and then it eventually grew to be like where I it was me and I had one guy hosting one week one guy hosting the other week and then my right hand guy was like hey I kind of want to do an anime podcast which launches in November from us and so over the lap we're kind of in this like place where like we're finally starting to like get to like this is this is that high praise it's been a long journey yeah I feel like when you first like start podcasting like you're getting into like what your sound is going to be like for sure for sure i love everything you guys got going on when we when you first reached out to us and i i was like kind of just finding out like about what you guys do and your kind of mission statement 
I, I, it was some first, it was something I've never seen before. I never really seen anybody kind of blend, you know, this kind of nerdy pop culture thing we do with a topic that's as serious as kind of mental health recovery, uh, and all that. So I, uh, it was amazing. And then on top of that, you and I just vibed right away on horror, um, over Instagram. <laughs> so chat. True. I, I was on the road working on a movie and I just remember being in the hotel, just chatting over Instagram. And I was just like, Jesus, like it was like a uh, stepbrothers moment almost. I was like, do we like everything that's the same? This is, this is awesome. Uh, yeah. I remember the first time that we like got to record, uh, for our show, good burger at the time. And, uh, like it was me, you, uh, the, one of our, our, podcasters Colesse Davis and then Masha and it was just like this like yeah like no one else like was on that conversation it was just like Andy and I talking about horror and it's like oh yeah we came here to talk about Good Burger yeah we're like oh I'm yeah sorry. Nickelodeon Nickelodeon stay on for <laughs> there was a horror episode or a horror TV movie of Keenan and Kel I don't know if you remember Two that heads are better than uh, I, I knew you would have remembered no yeah, yeah. So you can always find the horror angle. That's uh, such a but, fun movie. I, I yeah, come back it to it like every every so often because it it's uh it's now streaming on YouTube. Oh really? Like officially? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. No, no, like no, no, no. It's oh. like <laughs> it's still like the the crappy four by six. Oh, I, I know. Sometimes Nickelodeon to. is kicking the nostalgia thing and like re-uploading stuff in 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 like a nice HD quality from back in the day. They did that for um, Are You Afraid of the Dark years ago and. Nice. Uh, they would upload one episode every day and then they got away from doing it. Like, I think they only did it for like a couple of days, but now you can get everything on Paramount plus. So, Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's a mountain of content. I forgot. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So we're going to kick this off. Like I said, we're going to be talking about Halloween, which this is going to be a doozy to tackle. Cause not only is it 11 movies deep, this is probably, I mean, I have a lot to say, but probably the first franchise I ever loved, the first horror movie I ever loved, kind of the first horror movie I ever remember seeing, and Michael Myers basically haunted my childhood. It took me like until I was a decent age of 14, 15 to really just get over the fact that he's probably not going to be in my closet coming after me. Uh, so I've just been on board with this series since day one, and we have the newest installment, Halloween Kills, coming out this month. Um, we are recording this before it comes out, so this is going to be kind of a franchise recap leading up to it. We are not going to have any kind of thoughts on this new one because just haven't seen it yet. Um, but before we dive in, Josh, where where do you stand? I mean, I know you love Halloween, but how did it start? Where, like, what was your intro into the series? So my, fr my history with this franchise is not probably as unique as yours. Uh, I ended up actually discovering this within the last 15 years. Ah, interesting. Uh, I grew up in a fairly conservative Christian household, and when I grew up, horror was not allowed. It was not something that we talked about. It was not something that it, we addressed. So what I ended up actually doing was when I turned 18, I went and bought one of, got one of these bad boys. And which tell the listeners what that is. Uh, this is my blockbuster card that I've still Fan. kept. Fantastic. Uh, That's amazing. No, I loved it. <laughs> That's awesome. And I, I just went and like, I got like all of the films that like I heard so much about. And one of them ended up actually being the original Halloween. And I was like, just shook. I was like, I need to know everything about this franchise. And I went and just deep dived into that. And it's kind of like my first, like for foray into horror like as a franchise 
and I just immediately fell in love with it and, uh, you know, started doing research and like, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but like, you know, this franchise gave us Paul Rudd. It gave us Josh Hartnett. It gave us the final performance from Donald Pleasance. Like it really does mean a whole lot to a lot of people. And it took risks that I think not only as a horror franchise, do I enjoy those risks, but I really respect them at the same time. For sure. For sure. I want to rewind real quick, though. So with I find that inter- that history very interesting. So when you said you turned 18 and just immediately started getting horror movies, there had to have been some kind of like you, you had to have been intrigued by them when you were growing up. Like, like, what was that? Like, how did you know that? Like, I want to go watch these movies. Like, if you've never seen them before. So when uh, when I was eight, my grandmother got diagnosed with cancer. And she was on her deathbed. And so to kind of, it was the first time that like I say that like I felt depression. So I I did like a deep dive into like just movies. Like we got the internet at the time. Um, And so what I would do is I would just spend hours just ended up actually, I would just end up like watching and researching things. So like in that research, I came across things like The Exorcist, The Omen, Jaws, like these like, Seminal groundbreaking, movies, yeah. yeah, revolutionary films that just really shaped and molded the genre, and those are the kind of films that I was so curious about. Like, I wanted to understand like what scared someone so much that they literally passed out and had to be rushed to the hospital during the first screenings of of The Exorcist. Like, what scared someone so bad that they couldn't go into the ocean for a year? Like, you know, uh. So, like, just jumping into things like that and, like, Halloween, the first one is so simplistic that it's, like, that's what makes it so terrifying is it's the story literally of an area that you wouldn't think being terrorized by a serial killer and yet here he is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's that's pretty cool to just kind of that you came in, at like, so much later in life and then still just fell in love with the kind of the idea because i i'm kind of the same way just younger where i don't know the way people talk about visually seeing star wars when they were like who grew up in the 70s and seeing darth vader walk out for the first time and how just like visually he embodied so much like evil and and kind of just terror and all that like i had because I, I guess i saw star wars a little later for me that was always just the vision of michael myers like the shape couldn't be a better word i remember being so young even though I love horror movies and always have, I was a scaredy cat as a young kid. It, it wasn't until I was about 14, 15 that I really started being able to, like, separate. And these movies weren't really, like, didn't really have a power over me. So I just remember being, I'm the youngest of, like, 14, 15 first cousins. I have a huge family. And I remember family gatherings where all the teenagers would be watching horror movies. And I'd be six, seven, eight years old trying to sneak in the room. And the memory of Halloween one, like I didn't watch the whole movie, but I just remember being there for that end. And I had never seen the trope of somebody, a body on the ground of a bad guy. You look away and you look back and he's gone. So when that happened, I remember my cousins literally tormenting me and telling me that, like, I was like, where'd he go? And he, they were like, he's still out there. Like, you know, like, so then I just, that stuck in my head where like, holy crap, this guy, he could be walking down my street. And, you know, like literally everything the filmmakers kind of, were aiming to happen is exactly what happened to me as about a six or seven years old. And just, you know, I was born in 1990. So throughout most of my childhood, I had, 
you know, Curse of Michael Myers and Halloween H2O just kind of in, you know, in advertisements in the world. Like, like Halloween was still pretty big. So I just remember always being haunted by Michael Myers in a commercial, hearing the music there, like going to the video store and they'd have a cardboard cutout and I'd be too scared to walk into the back. Uh, so it's just, I was always freaked out. But, you know, the reason we love horror and like is because that feeling is kind of fun. But I didn't realize it was fun at the time. And then once I hit my teenage years, I was like, I need to watch all these movies. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, he, I have uh, bought a little plushy Michael that sits on uh, sits on my office desk. So That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, but yeah, so then this franchise just, you know, like I've watched it so many times. I've grown to love the good with the bad. And like all franchises I love, I'm down to get critical about them, but only with people who I know love them also. It's kind of like your weird cousin, you know, like <laughs> like the family can make fun of them. But if someone else tries to, you get real defensive and they're like, no, that's oh. our family. So, oh, yeah. So, if yeah, people, you... yeah, if they don't love Halloween and they they make fun of Busta Rhymes, <laughs> I say get out of my face. But if you love the series, I'm yeah, you can crack some jokes and we could all have a good time. <laughs> Like and we'll as we'll discuss like even the lowest points of this movie like I still end up actually f just falling in love with like I I still have enough nostalgia that's attached to this that I'm just like you can say whatever you want to but this is X Y and Z about why this movie is still good yeah exactly and like even the ones I really probably don't think are that good there's always something some nugget in there I could find that I'm like at least it has this part or this thing and I love it. Um, but without further ado, this is going to be a long one, folks. Buckle up. You remember Fast and Furious. This is more movies than that. <laughs> so we're just going to jump right in to the original 1978 classic, Halloween. Written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Directed by John Carpenter himself and starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance, and... The Shape, Michael Myers, is played by Nick Castle with a mask-off scene by Tony Moran for, for a one-off. Uh, I think it'd be fun to kind of just say who plays the shape in each one of these because I do think it is a performance. You know, some people think Very it's just walking, so. but some guys can nail it and some guys, in my opinion, might not. Uh, but yeah, the plot of this one is after the brutal murder of his sister Judith on Halloween night, six-year-old Michael Myers is institutionalized. Now, 15 years later, this is the night he came home. Very simple, right to the point, and that's why we love this movie. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know where what what to say about how the original Halloween that hasn't been covered extensively. But uh, I don't know, Josh. You're a guest. Why don't you, what do you got for us? Yeah, I think one of the things that makes this so revolutionary is not just its delivery in such a simple film that, like, that's. This is what I miss about slashers is that like when you go back to like the foundation, like they're so simplistic, mm -hmm. like the fact of also to talking specifically about uh, like another movie from that time, Black Christmas, yep. that was legitimately terrifying. And I think it was so it's so simplistic in its delivery that it's kind of terrifying how simple it is. And that's really what helps to elevate that film to be the classic it is and that's the same for halloween and it starts right at the beginning and i think the pov shot that we get at the very beginning forever cements it as like oh this is this is a movie that you are getting ready to experience that you've never experienced before yeah 
And that P that opening POV shot, just being able to see everything from Michael's vantage point completely just sets it at a uh, advantage that I don't think we've ever seen successfully pulled off since. Yeah. I mean, it puts you, it makes you like the killer, but you don't realize till halfway through the sequence that that's what you're doing. Like, you know, we're so used to kind of seeing the movies through the eyes of our heroes. So when that movie starts, you might think like, oh, this is us. We might walk in on something horrific. But when that when he when that hand goes in and he picks up the knife, you're like, oh, we're about to do something horrific, and yeah, it does. It kind of like like you said, puts you in that psyche. I totally agree. Obviously, this movie spawned so many things that would later become cliches, but in the first, but it kind of established them here. But what I love about it, I kind of consider this the spiritual successor to Psycho in the sense where I think John Carpenter accomplished same thing Hitchcock did where. By all accounts, this movie should have been just a B-horror movie that came and went. Teenagers might have seen it, and then it kind of whisked away in the wind like many other movies. But they both saw the potential to kind of really use it as an avenue for groundbreaking filmmaking. And it's the reason, I think John Carpenter might be my favorite filmmaker of all time, but this Halloween original is a blueprint of how to make nothing out of something. Or, flip that around, make something out of nothing. Because these guys had... With such a little budget, I mean, the the way they maneuver the lighting and the camera and obviously the music, it's just, it, it's the reason, like, uh, when when sometimes young people watch this, like, I've seen this in theaters with people and they laugh at stuff that they find goofy and things like that, but when you put your mindset in 1978, this was, you know, it, it was Jaws on land, it was insane. I think it's for me one of the things that when I show people Halloween or like I can understand like a subsequent sequel kind of being goofy like Resurrection or even you know Curse a lot of like the 90s uh, early 2000s stuff of this era like that I can understand but when you are specifically looking at this first entry into the series and just everything that John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were capable and able to do successfully you have to consider that this film ushered in and not only became the most successful independent movie of its time until i think like 99 with the blair witch project that's over 21 years that this movie became a huge success for sure but also too you have to consider the fact that these guys kind of took like this Superman treatment where they had relatively unknown actors that launched careers of Jamie Lee Curtis. PJ Souls would kind of go on to do a little bit more at the time, but Donald Pleasance was kind of like the real like namesake. Like he For was sure. the guy that truly people knew. And I think that it's really interesting to look at this first Halloween because it's so bloodless. And when you look at other films that came after this movie, like it's, we just need blood, we need gore, we need, you know, we need tits, we need sex. And like a lot of that stuff that we associate with slashers now are largely absent in this one. Yep. And I feel like that's really what makes this film so groundbreaking is, is that it proves that you don't need a whole lot of sex you don't need a whole lot of blood to make a story intriguing and terrifying like to your point like it's the use of the camera it's the use of the lights like honestly the first time that i saw this i was just floored by 
the the last act here and the way that Carpenter would capture certain angles of light to really make this film truly terrifying. I think the the ending scene where you have um, Laurie kind of over the couch, like waiting for the boogeyman, the shape to kind of come back. And she's just sitting there with the knitting needle, like the use of, of light in that one is just so exquisite. And I think that Carpenter captures it enormously well. Yeah, agreed. And I think because of the age at which I watched, like, like watch this again, like when I was 14, 15, this was also one of the first movies that made me think about how movies are made. And like, really, if I boil it down, probably one of the reasons I work, <laughs> you know, in filmmaking right now, because it was, it's not, it's simple once it's explained to you, but to figure it out at the time. And, you know, the scene you just described is absolutely on point. Um, and the one that I always love, you know, the classic when after she discovers the bodies of her friends and she's standing in front of the darkened closet, and then slowly they use a dimmer to just dim the light on the shape's face as he's standing there. And I heard John Carpenter describe it that he was trying to recreate the idea of when you're in a pitch black room, but, but there's a little bit of light and your eyes slowly adjust and you see more and more of the room. And like, I, I just didn't even, you know, you don't think about that kind of stuff when you're a kid watching movies. Like I didn't even know we lit movies as a kid. And so just it's uh, something out of nothing is just, uh, I, I, can, I can always go back to this gem and just see how it's like it's a lot of so many scenes of people standing but the music and the way that they're framed and composed it's masterful i i can just talk all day about it and i feel like too like uh we were talking we we had texted about this but uh, a few years ago when they were doing the 2018 film they put out this series called halloween unmasked and yeah. one of the interviews from that specific podcast series has always stuck with me and it's always changed the way i've watched it and they talked about the use of how they did background stuff to where you are now seeing like because of the use of lighting and the shadows like they're taking advantage and diverting expectations from the viewers to look into the eyes of you know like say like a dark left hand corner like you're not expecting to see something because your your eyes are trained to look almost exclusively at what you're seeing unfold between Michael and the rest of Haddonfield right in the center of the screen but they this film takes advantage of those shadows so extremely well and I feel like it's one of the things that has made me really respect it and like I haven't gotten into movies I mean I took a I guess I kind of did. I, I'm a film critic, so it's kind of like I, I took a different route than you. But like this film and others like it, like like Psycho, have really uh, kind of imprinted why I love to talk and dissect horror films is because horror films just not only bring out the the conversations that we don't want to have like these true fears. Like I think that, you know, Lori walking home from school and having the feeling of having to look over her shoulder and, or even like the scene of her, like in class looking out and seeing Michael, like how many of us have always had that, you know, you always feel like someone's watching you, especially when you're alone in, even in suburbia, like, just because you live in suburbia doesn't mean that you can't come across evil incarnate like the shape. And I feel like that's one of the things that makes this film so truly terrifying is that it it plays on our most simplest of fears that we don't realize that we have. Yeah, and it plays on it so smartly because that suburban thing is is what I always think that it plays with the idea that because the suburbs are considered generally safe, no one really is on their guard 
which kind of makes it even scarier because yeah you're surrounded by people but no everyone's like yeah we're nice suburban people why would there be a killer in our bushes you know and so like you know when Lori's at the end running for help and knocking on that one door and the people like no no one comes out to help her and it's just like it makes it almost scarier it's just like a row of you know turning your everyday life into the haunted houses that we used to visit in older horror movies yeah for sure we used to visit the horror and this time it comes to us so it's 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 groundbreaking yeah because i mean you never you never expect kind of like that stuff to come to your your neighborhood and uh you know i i've lived in the suburbs before and you know i don't know there's something about it that like if someone came knocking on your door, you're just like, oh, they're they're drunk, probably. Yeah. You know, you're not expecting them to be like, oh, no, I'm actually being chased by a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Or you could be paranoid and be like, is that a trap? Are they just saying to get in the house? You know, it's like you can really you can really get yeah. in your own head when you're out there alone. Yeah, it's, it's very different. Like living in the city versus <laughs> versus that. Like I said, there's just been so much already said about this movie. But do you have any kind of like favorite characters outside i mean we all love loomis and laurie but i mean I, you can't really go without speaking about the annie and uh linda um it kind of set the whole trope of the you know get a group of teenagers with slightly different personalities in a slasher movie you know it's way more natural in this than in other ones i'm looking at friday the 13th for some of these groups where i'm just like why are these eight <laughs> people friends like none of this tracks you know <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, honestly, like this, this is kind of what I regard as a perfect film. Yeah. Honestly, I think I that kind of agree. perfect, perfect films are a dime a dozen. And I think that Carpenter is able to do it by making all of the characters so vastly different. And yet at the same time, also, uh, making them to a likable level that I don't know, like it's, it's so hard to say because like there's obviously you have Lori, like she's been kind of like the staple and the foundation for this franchise for so long like 43 years later like we're still talking about Lori strode and michael's relationship and kind of the just the the radical nature of like how this one night has affected this character in a multiverse of ways and I think that you look to other characters like Annie, you look to other characters like Sheriff Brackett and um, Linda and even Bob. And like, you kind of see these are foundational archetypes that will forever to your point, change the way that we see slashers and kind of the formula, but also at the same time, I think it's also worth noting that like you said, like there's a natural, aspect to this that i feel like other slashers really lacked like you mentioned friday the 13th it's like well why would these people be friends whereas yeah. you look at something like uh halloween and it's like especially in this version of the story all these characters just kind of seem to have a, a natural progression and chemistry with with them that makes it believable yeah and, and especially high school friendships because yeah they might you know, they might not be lifelong friends, but I could totally believe that these three would kind of gravitate towards each other in high school. And even though, you know, Laurie Strode isn't, you know, she's the kind of shy virgin, which again also becomes a cliche, and they're not, it's still not like unbelievable that they would be friends. It's it's very, their, their chemistry is just so natural when they walk and talk and, and hang out together. Yeah. Uh, one thing that, you know, I've never really watched this franchise this close together before. I've always kind of even when I saw it for the first time, it was still some periods in between. 
So I definitely want to kind of talk about Michael Myers in each movie. Uh, it's kind of hard on this one because this kind of is what Michael Myers is. Like, it's you, there's nothing to compare this first portrayal to because it kind of sets the bar for what all the rest of them will be. But I will just say I love Nick Castle as the shape, and I obviously the original mask is too iconic to even speak of. You know, the William Shatner painted mask. Everyone knows the story. If you don't, it was an old Captain Kirk mask from Star Trek, the original series. Actually, if I remember correctly, it's uh. That's a common misconception. It's oh. it is based upon a um, William Shatner thing, but like years I think, before I, I right, he yeah. had done Captain Kirk, he was doing like B level horror movies, uh-huh. and he had actually was in like some kind of like weird fifties sci fi and got his like face molded, and that's kind of the what they he's actually based upon wow okay i didn't know this never mind i thought i, I thought i knew what you were gonna say but that's uh i didn't know that yeah i always assumed it was captain kirk probably just because of his most famous roles people just assumed why wouldn't that have a mask yeah yeah but that's um that's fantastic well if you have any other kind of like just fun nerd tips before we move on to the next one um i love you know the cut the, the fact that the kids are watching the thing from another world on tv which, you know, it's only a couple of years before John Carpenter would famously remake it. So it was clearly on his mind at the time. So I love that little bit of trivia. Yeah, it's also, I mean, we talked about this earlier, but one of the things that I always love telling people specifically about this franchise is the way that you can kind of see the, the quote, shoe budget, film budget they were on, shoestring yeah. film budget they were on, because, like, they shot this in, like, what, like, middle of summer, right? But yep. it's supposed to be fall. So, like... They had like a bag of fake leaves that they would like use for certain scenes and then they would have to stop and carefully like almost like they were porcelain have to like pick them back up and recollect them for other scenes, which I just always find so fascinating and uh, just makes me fall in love with this movie even more. Yeah, it's it's for sure. I've, I've done that trivia, too. And, you know, the fact that they're doubling California for, you know, Illinois, essentially. I don't know. Have I showed you the picture when I, last time I was in LA? Uh, I went to the to the Michael Myers house. That and the Freddy Krueger or uh, Nancy house from Nightmare on Elm Street are right around the corner from each other. Uh, no. So it's an invaluable photo I have it. I'll send it to you if I haven't. So jealous. Uh, I haven't posted it yet because I'm going to have Masha with her Photoshop skills. I wanted to Photoshop Michael Myers in the background, stalking me <laughs> as I'm photo as I'm taking a photo in front of the house. Um, but yeah, they're they're still intact, so it's pretty. My cousin knew I loved horror movies, and I was visiting, and he uh, he just was like, "I want to take you somewhere." And then we did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street first, and he just pulled up, and he's like, "Do you know what that is?" And I saw the red door, and I was like, oh, "I know exactly where we are." It, it's a trip. Which is is funny because they in the Halloween Unmasked series, they actually end up talking to the current homeowners, and they had no idea specifically like about the films about the house's history. That's so funny. And so, like, when they actually bought the house, they were like, yeah, like, random people would just come up to us and just, like, <laughs> take their pictures. And, like, we eventually asked them, like, you know, why do you guys keep doing this? And then eventually found out that it was the Michael Myers. Yeah, they, they just wake up and people have fallen off the balcony recreating <laughs> the ending. And they're just <laughs> like, why are you falling off our balcony? Um, all right. So, yeah, that's this is I mean, we're going to you know, love what I love. We'll be doing a future full length episode on the first Halloween. So. I'm purposely kind of trying to stay away from too much behind the scenes, but it's iconic. It's, you know, it's the template for so many movies you probably already love. Check it out if you haven't. Um, but we are going to move on. 
to Halloween 2, released in 1981. Written by John Carpenter, Deborah Hill, and a six-pack of beer, according to John Carpenter, because he reportedly wrote it in a weekend while drinking. Um, directed by Rick Rosenthal and starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance, and this time Dick Warlock as The Shape. And this movie continues right where the first film left off. Lori is taken to a hospital for her injuries, only to find Michael Myers is still alive and looking for her. The tagline is literally, more of the night he came home. Wow. I, I did not actually know that, like, little tidbit. Which That's... one? The John Carpenter? No, the uh, the more more of the night that he came home yeah yeah that's like uh on some of the posters it's not in all of them but it's i just it always stuck out to me because it's one of the most unoriginal taglines it's just yeah a little bit more of the night he came home last year when i was in the, the pandemic i it's behind me now but i actually have the original fangoria uh of the halloween 2 when that came out oh that's awesome so I, I love the the pumpkin skull design that this movie has is like it's like imagery. I think it pulls it off really well. Yeah. But yeah, man, Halloween, too. So this one's an interesting one because it again, like I said, it's written by John Carpenter. He's still somewhat involved in the series, not directing, but it's shot by Dean Cundy, who we didn't mention, but he filmed the first movie. So as the same cinematographer, still has some Carpenter flair in the music. And Rick Rosenthal also has said he's kind of. Not a student of Carpenter, but he wanted to do his best to honor kind of the original. So this one's interesting because it's it's so closely tied to the first. And I'm curious to know what you think about it because I think it has a lot of similarities. But also for me, it just there's some something in its soul that's missing that I just don't have this. It doesn't have the same reverence as the first one for me, even though it's the closest to it, in my opinion. Yeah, so a lot has changed in three years from 1978 to 1981. Oh, yeah, I mean... Namely, a little film called Friday the 13th. Yeah, and just a little little indie darling that nobody remembers anymore. <laughs> Friday the 13th kind of completely changed the landscape of how we view this subgenre. Yep. And namely is... It just got more brutal. And so you kind of have Halloween, instead of actually being a trendsetter, actually following a trend. And it's not the last time that we're going to see this in this franchise. For sure. But this is where it starts. And I think for me, to to your point, like I understand a lot of people like this film. I understand that it's possibly even some people's like favorite films. This is kind of like the mid-tier film for me. I'm yeah. not a huge fan of this film. I come back to it probably when I do these rewatches. But it's not like something like Halloween 4 or like Halloween 3 that like I watch so frequently on their own. I enjoy, I think, some of the best kills come from this. Um, some of the best imagery comes from this movie. Yeah, You can't get better than the, uh, the two teardrop blood eyes. Uh, image that we we get to later see with Michael and this is I, I won't say like crucial but this this film really shapes the way that I think we view or at least the general population views the actual imagery of Michael Myers moving forward yeah agreed the brutal aspect is totally true where in terms of copying kind of with, with the template that night Friday the 13th set but what made that one different, though, is Tom Savini behind the helm of the special effects. So when it comes to brutality, I'll take the first Friday the 13th over this movie. But I kind of, I think we're on the same wavelength here, too, where 
it's it's this isn't one that I go to that often, and I really don't even really ever watch this one on its own. I always kind of watch it in tandem with the first one because of just like the way they bleed into each other. Um, and there is some really good stuff I like about it, but this on this viewing, I wanted to pinpoint what my problems were and why it doesn't resonate with me. And I think for me, a lot of it is just kind of Lori as a character, where after the first movie, I do feel like they kind of just did her dirty a little bit, where she spends kind of so much of this movie just inactive and either drugged out or limping and doesn't really have a lot of agency. And I just feel like for a sequel, you know, not that we had these templates made already, but I almost wanted like a Sarah Connoring of her a little bit where she's kind of ready to fight a little bit more. And and in this one, I feel like they, they kind of took the emphasis off her and it makes the middle of the movie drag a lot. I think the opening is really good. Michael, that tracking shot of Michael through the neighborhood is the closest I think we get to feeling like the original Halloween. Yeah. And then the ending is just so unforgettable. I mean, how could you not <laughs> really be on board with it? But man, every time I watch the middle portion of just the long, dark hallway scenes, I just, I, I tend to get a little sleepy. I'm not even going to lie. Like, I don't know what it is. It's not bad. It just doesn't, it doesn't rip me out of my seat. Also, too, that this film kind of like makes like odd character decisions, in, in my opinion, like that I noticed like this time around, like they, they really tried not, not exclusively to kind of like engage into that whole like teenage sex trope. But the fact that like Lori is like recovering from this like traumatic event and they are trying to throw in love interest. Yeah, she's like smitten this... with this young boy. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It's such an <laughs> odd decision. Like, Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I didn't really care for the hospital staff either. They're all kind of like, they're all like tropes that. I can tolerate with teenagers, but because they're supposed to be like people in their twenties working at a hospital, I'm just like all this like sex crazed, like smoking joints on the job. Like I don't buy it as much when it's <laughs> when it's not teenagers. I, I think also too, uh, one of the things that like I I kind of picked up this past time is that uh, Sheriff Brackett, which uh, I will get to later, but uh, I've largely kind of always associated him as kind of like a, a single dad. Yeah. And this film actually specifies that like he has a wife and the death I, of Annie like really affects them. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting kind of the, the character decisions that we do get made here. I think somewhat uh, you joke about that he wrote this with a six pack of beer over a weekend. I feel like some of that you can definitely tell. And uh, oh, yeah. John the, Carpenter wasn't hyped about making this movie at all. No. Yeah. I, I mean, as. as as he shouldn't have been like the first film is like a like i said like it's a perfect film and this film i i've kind of come to the conclusion that it's an all right sequel i can understand why people like it but it's just not my favorite just because it it pushes the boundaries that are gonna forever shape the franchise and it has some cool kills in it but i mean how do you feel about like them being brother and sister for this one yeah because because it's also like kind of like malignant to where like this girl experienced a traumatic event that she repressed, but this whole entire evening brought up that repression. Yeah. I, so it's such an interesting thing. So I don't, I like both. I like them. I like that we, they're not brother and sister in this new version that we have, this new timeline. But I just grew up in the era of Halloween H2O. That was like really my first, like, 
I just remember I was eight years old. I remember everything about it. And that movie hankers so much on the brother and sister angle. So for me, I always thought they were brother and sister. I was that one where I went back and it wasn't until like I was watching these in a row that I realized, holy crap, they're not even related in the first movie. So I do, I do kind of like it as an idea, but I gotta say in this movie, it absolutely means nothing to the plot. And it's a very lazy way to have a twist at the end of the movie. I, I think the fact that Laurie never even learns that they're brother and sister is a wasted opportunity. And it never really means anything other than it tells Loomis in the third act where Michael's going to be, which is going after Laurie. So I do th- I think it's kind of cheap in this script. And then John Carpenter admits it too. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's right after Empire Strikes Back with one of the greatest family twists of all time. <laughs> I really don't. Like, it's the year after. Everyone loved it. So he was like, ooh, what if it's something like that? So I think in the long run, I kind of like it. I like that we follow her niece. I, I, I don't hate the family line storyline. But in this movie, I got to say, it's lazy writing. And it, it, they don't do anything with it. I, 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 I agree. I, I think that one of the reasons that I've, I've always kind of come back specifically and like regarded Halloween as my favorite franchise is because of the, you know, it just demonstrates how family trauma is kind of passed down through the generations. Yeah. And if we're not addressing it and we're not working on it, then history is going to keep repeating itself. And from doing a working for a nonprofit and doing a, several podcasts on mental health, I think this film, this franchise in particular captures it really well, but you don't see it captured here at all. Like, yeah, no, not at all. It, it, you don't get to really see it. I feel like kind of like take shape until part four, as we'll talk about. But here I feel like, you know, there's so much about this movie that's just really, to your point, like just feels really lazy. Like you can kind of see like the the hand force of Carpenter in this film that he just didn't want to be here. It, it seems like to an extent like Jamie Lee Curtis didn't want to be here. Are we going to talk about how bad the wig is here? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is, I mean, Halloween is the only movie ever with Jamie Lee Curtis naturally having long hair immediately after she don the look that we all know for the rest of her career but yeah the we've had some better wigs and better sequels so i'll put it that way <laughs> it does not look natural yeah and i i guess like kind of like talking about the redeeming qualities of this movie too like i will also say probably one of my favorite gags out of every halloween film comes from this movie and that is the hot tub scene oh yeah yeah just like in terms of a kill sequence you mean yeah oh it's, it's memorable it's so as hell weird. yeah it's it's fantastic honestly with listeners i don't know uh, what kind of mixed bag we're gonna get between people who have seen these movies and people who haven't so sometimes if we say stuff like that basically it's this fantastic scene where this woman is in the hot tub and michael just cranks up the heat as it's slowly the heat's rising he's dunking her head in kind of suffocating her and letting her out to breathe but the water's getting hotter and hotter and every time he pulls her head out like more skin is kind of been peeled off her face the special effects work is fantastic on that scene I'm, i yeah. love it yeah i guess if you're also going to specify that for for listeners that the term uh gag is actually also a uh what is called in the horror community a kill within a movie yeah yeah in case people and I, that was why i kind of paused too just to be like you mean the kill sequence right <laughs> but yeah it's fantastic um i think another reason this one kind of falls flat to me too and this is a purely visual choice michael with a scalpel is lame (laughs) i i I hate the look of michael walking around with that little tiny blade kind of like slowly protruding out from him 
I just, I enjoy, I enjoy a big knifed Michael or just any other weapon besides a tiny little surgical scalpel. I, I, I don't find, I didn't find it very visually threatening. Yeah, I, I will 100% agree with that. And I guess my last complaint specifically about this movie is uh, there's a scene where Loomis comes in and sees the word Samheim. I probably mispronounced that, but it's it's written on. I, the I only know from all the behind the scenes I've watched, but yeah, it's pronounced Sawin, even though it's not Sawin. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It. But yeah, I did not know that until it was told to me. So I'm not, I'm no expert. <laughs> uh, so so it's 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 Sawin. It's written on there, which is the actual original name for Halloween. Yeah, it's like a Celtic term, I believe. And they just do nothing with it. And he says Sam Hain. He like he pronounces it phonetically, which like is, is like again, I didn't know that, but do your research if you're going to put it in the movie. <laughs> yeah, like I'm just like this this could have been like such a, a cool thing and I don't know if you've ever actually read the uh the novelization from 1978. I haven't, I but I've read Taking Shape which goes deep into it, but I haven't okay. actually read the novelization. So like the novelization for listeners clarification the novelization of 1978 basically is giving some background story that we'll eventually see in four five and six but basically michael is the last in this like bloodline of just like legitimate ancient evil and kind of like has like actual like salwin ties to the celtic and i i feel like they tried to like insert some of that stuff in here and it just didn't work. Yeah, I mean, I literally think it's the the effect of writing a movie in a weekend. Like, it's just like John Carpenter was was doing this just to get his other films get made, basically. And I'm kind of, that's my favorite thing about Halloween, too, is it allowed John Carpenter the freedom to then bring us things like The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, and his, like, his 80s filmography is unmatched, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So I will always love Halloween, too, for putting money in his pocket and allowing him some creative freedom to then pretty soon leave the franchise not right away but yeah because um, i love the franchise will love it to the day i die but i also love that john carpenter got to leave it because if he got creatively trapped in only making sequels we would have missed out on so i think much. one of the greatest american filmmakers yeah, um, i i 100 agree with you on that one so what's your opinion well just really quick uh on dick warlock as the shape and the mask um because i feel i feel like everything i read everyone says it's the exact same mask as the first movie but it, i don't know if they just lit it differently but it doesn't look like it to me he looks very different in my opinion no i think this is kind of the the turn and obviously <sighs> we'll get into it more with with part four the return of michael myers but this is kind of the the turn where the mask kind of like starts feeling generic yeah and dick warlock like i honestly like he's not a terrible uh shape i think he does a, a fine job it's just very he kind of gets like buried in the the underwhelming nature of this movie overall so it's kind of hard for him to truly stand out yeah yeah it's, I, I like him too but yeah nothing about it like it's not it's not great it's not terrible he's just like it's it's a solid it's a solid try i think and again we're still like not really sure what michael was or is you know we're still kind of building all of that it's the second movie and you know just for the fans out there what i love about the this franchise too is how many different branching timelines it has um josh even sent me a great thing on instagram that i'll probably post on love what i love uh that kind of gives you a quick explainer in graph form but this by all intents and purposes was 
John Carpenter ending the series. This movie ends with Michael Myers getting shot in both of his eyes, being blinded, and then him and Loomis blowing up inside of a hospital, uh, and then his burning corpse on the ground. It by, it by all means was supposed to be this. Michael Myers is dead. We're done. You know. Yeah, I I kind of there's a part of me that's kind of like I would have wouldn't have minded it staying here because like I really do enjoy the the idea of Halloween being an anthology because when you look at horror movies horror movies are so many different things to so many different people and I think that the transition between Halloween 2 to Halloween 3 you really tried to embrace that and I think for the most part obviously I'll talk about this more in Halloween 3 but like the idea of like blowing up the shape and Loomis I I would have been com- completely fine with it. Not to say that I don't love other entries into this franchise. No, yeah, I know what you mean though. But like the the fin- the finality of this, like just it's like okay, I'm here for this. Yeah, and it's also like John Carpenter kind of saying like, "Leave me alone." Like you know, like I came back, I wrote another one. I'm blowing him up. Do not ask me to come back and write write another Michael Myers movie. Like it was almost him just being like, "Everybody get out of my face." But what I and I'm I'm gonna hear, kind of interested in your take on this as we go through these. What what I, the biggest realization I had about the franchise watching them for this episode was there were things I felt and I believe fans at the time too felt so strongly about when they make these really left turn decisions with the franchise because they feel at the time that they're never gonna get the Halloween they love again. But now that we're 40 years removed from the first movie, or 43 years removed from the first movie, Halloween has proven there will always be a reinvention. There'll always be a chance to go back to what you love. There'll always be... So, like, because I remember in 2007, I was, you know, we're not even close to there, but I felt very strongly about the Rob Zombie movies because I felt that's that's what Halloween will be forever going forward. Not Mm -hmm. thinking, hey, maybe one day we'll do something else. And now that we have done something else, I can go back and watch those movies as a much calmer fanboy, knowing like, okay, this is a diversion we took. (laughs) And same thing, like Halloween 3, I get what we're not there, but when people who felt harshly about it like it now because they know, hey, Michael Myers, you know, he's not gone. You know, so it's like, I if this was the ending, I don't know how it would feel, but I like in my mind, like, you know, I like to, you can watch one and two, close the book and never come back and you, you would be fine. You know? Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same way. I think that this movie, it, it satisfies and, and it has its place. Um, and it, it's got some great ideas that we, we later get explored. But if this was the end and it wasn't until they decided to remake it back during that weird 2000s trend, yeah, I would have been completely fine with it because this movie, I think... Like I said, it has good ideas. It's just not always the yeah. greatest execution. Yeah, and it's it has one of the problems that some other movies will face in the future, which is it's following a masterpiece. So it's like, it, that never helps. You know, like if this was following a bad entry, it would probably look a lot better. But because it's following, you know, such an iconic film, it's like, how can, you know, a good job is just not enough when you're following Halloween 1. Yeah, it's like that weird trend that we got a couple years ago where they're like, oh, we're just going to take movies that are just like perfect and we're just going to make a sequel to them 20 years later. Yeah. Like, you can't capitalize on Dumb and Dumber. No, it is, yeah, it's just, it's just impossible. Yeah. so good. <laughs> yeah, so it's, 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 it's that syndrome right there. Um, but all right, um, let us move on. We are going to the next entry, which is just one year later in 1982, called Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. It is written by Tommy Lee Wallace with some uncredited writing by John Carpenter and Nigel Neal, which we can get into if we'd like. 
directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, who is one of the producers on the first two movies, and starring Tom Atkins, Stacey Nelkin, and Dan O'Harely. Don't know if I'm saying that right, but I did my best, folks. This is probably the hardest movie to sum up in a few sentences, <laughs> but let me do my best. I literally yeah. had to rewrite this about six times. After the mysterious murder of a local Halloween mask salesman, emergency room doctor Dan Chalice and the murdered man's daughter Ellie team up and seek to uncover the answers behind his death and in turn uncovering an evil plot by the Silver Shamrock Mask Company. I don't know, how did I do? Because you cannot describe Halloween 3 in two sentences. It's like, <laughs> it's the most convoluted plot. <laughs> well, like, it's not just like the night he came home. That's not what we're doing anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's pretty complex. Like I remember the first time like I watched it, I was like, What just happened? Like what what just happened in the last like two hours of my life? And then like being a like a, a fan, a legitimate fan of this movie now, um, I guess I just spoiled my my uh, <laughs> take on this. Oh good. Um too early. But this movie is is incredibly just throws you for massive twists and turns and the I, whole way. I think it's one of those rare sci-fi horror movies that, like to your point, it's extremely hard to sum up in without spoiling it. It's basically exactly like, that's what I was trying to do too, like writing so that without giving away really like the plan or anything. Um, but the but yeah, God, I was gonna say the complexity of it. I feel like is really what helps it stand out so well from this franchise that even without Michael Myers, quote unquote, because. We'll talk about it. Yeah. But Michael Myers, I think, for the Halloween, this is one of the strongest entries we've seen. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll get into that. But for uh, you viewers out there who might be confused, and by viewers, I mean listeners, because there's no cameras, <laughs> where the reason all of a sudden this plot has changed and we're not talking about Michael Myers, Laurie Strode, or Sam Loomis is what we were alluding to on the last one. This was an attempt to turn the Halloween franchise into an anthology series that... May or may not have been yearly, but the idea would be it would just be stories revolved around the ho the holiday Halloween and, you know, the tone and the style of the horror can change as long as Halloween is consistent. Obviously, this is the only time that they they didn't do that again going forward with this one, but it's the reason why this one is so different um, than the rest of the franchise. I just wanted to clear that up for people. I mean, I, you could argue that there are some anthological aspects of this film as we'll kind of or series as we'll continue on because whew, the timeline for this these movies are so that's true that's true yeah, yeah. i guess and, i just uh, meant more we're like you know literally they're watching halloween in this movie <laughs> so we're now in a series where halloween's a film so it's it's like we're we're very stepped out and do you think that was done deliberately just to like real like because like, they knew people were gonna have a hard time with that michael myers wasn't in the movie to just be like look he's not gonna show up like they're watching him on TV. He's not gonna. There's not gonna be a third act reveal where Michael's in the story, because I could see maybe if you're not if you're not into advertisements and you just walked in on this in 1982, you'll be like, I wonder when he's gonna show up. You know, like yeah, I think it's an interesting choice to to definitely do that. It definitely gives it a, a meta nature that was years before Scream. It was also um, I'll want to throw this out there too that. Um, even a, another film that a lot of people don't like, but when you move from like the human centipede to like the human centipede two, it's another film that kind of has that reference where it has nothing to do with its predecessors and what's come before it. But in that universe, it's predecessors it's actually a film. Yeah. I've, I've, I've actually never seen those, but I've heard that that's like kind of the, the, the angle on the sequels where it's like someone saw human centipede and then wanted to recreate it in, in their real life. It, it's, it's wild. But, yeah, that's uh, cool. I, 
I just kind of use that as an example, but I, I think that this film in kind of taking that anthological approach to storytelling really makes it ahead of its time because this was years before we were going to get stuff like, uh, I mean, this is the same years as Creep Show. You know, it's years before we got Tales from the Crypt uh, and even kind of uh, American Horror Story. Like, I just kind of feel like we weren't at a place where we were ready to see it in uh, long form storytelling like this yeah and honestly i really don't even think we have ever seen it like this it's never really kind of no one else has ever really done that i can't think of a series of movies where every sequel isn't connected to the last like it's just like the twilight zone movie and, and creep show but those are individual stories within one movie like i can't think of another franchise where what they were planning on doing with halloween actually happened can am i is there one i'm missing no no that and like i said that's why this movie is is incredibly ahead of its time in that is because you know you look at something like a really grounded slasher movie like halloween one and two which essentially is one long movie and you're like all right how can we get so far away from that that it's going to be like all right we're going to get into witchcraft we're gonna get into uh celtic legends we're gonna get into uh just weird sci-fi aspects and really just dive and just go bananas, bananas. on this <laughs> and i think that's kind of what you know really has made it i think the closest thing we've ever seen to that long short long-term storytelling is american horror story where you're t essentially telling one long story over 10 episodes yep. and then the next season has nothing to do with it. Now in more recent seasons, that's kind of changed a little bit. They're starting to blend it a little bit. Yeah. But this is kind of the first time that we've ever seen that. And I think that this is the first, this remains the first and only time we've ever seen this in a cinematic format. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's super, super ballsy to even try it. Um, and yeah, just uh, to go off, I know I haven't really like, shown my cards yet but i love this entry <laughs> and it's it's the one where it took me the longest to love because i think i had the same reaction america had when it came out i wasn't happy born but when i when i was going through this franchise i actually skipped this one because i knew what it was and i was like i want to watch all the halloweens and i did my research on the internet and then i was like one two why well, watch three no michael myers i just put it aside four five six and then when I was doing this, Resurrection was the newest one, because that's that's around the time. And then eventually I was like, you know what? Just for the completionist in me, I should watch it. I know it's going to be stupid. It's not Michael Myers. And then I remember just being floored by so much of it and still not loving it. But every time I watch it, including up to the last week, I like it even more. So literally this last time I watched it was the most I've ever liked it. I just, I the older I get, the more I respect this kind of filmmaking, where even if everything doesn't work, Oh, they swung for it, baby. They didn't hold anything back. There is no... I don't feel studio meddling in this movie. I feel like this no. is like filmmakers just trying some wild stuff. And even if it doesn't work, I respect it. I respect them going up to the plate. And I prefer this over playing it safe every every time. Not only is this so vastly different, tonally speaking, but this is the first and only time, and I only caught this in my most recent uh, rewatch, but this is the first time that we ever actually see a story take place longer than a day or two prior to Halloween. This film starts out eight days before Halloween. It does. I do find that to be a weird choice because it does cut from eight days to like two days until Halloween. Where we so just, weird. I was like, why did we, was he, was he just on a bender for six days? The other thing I got to talk about this movie is I'm just, I, you don't see this. 
And this isn't even a good or bad thing, but this is just, like, insane. That Our main character is truly, down to his core, an alcoholic, and it has nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> like, usually when you do that in a movie, there's a, there's a third-act scene where he gives a booze, or maybe the booze holds him back. It just, it's just the nice little detour this guy has to take every once in a while where he has to stave off the shakes by having a drink. And I just find that to be such a funny choice to write for a character when it's not, you know, it's not Who Framed Roger Rabbit where, where it actually has something to do with the character. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it, to me, it's very funny and I, I don't know why why they do it, but I'll, it's, it makes me remember the movie for sure. I think, and, and I could be completely wrong, but the way that I interpret this is that it's, it's very much like a product of its time in yeah. that aspect to where like, in the early 80s, like, it was okay to have, like, functioning alcoholics. You're, like, uh, your emergency Atkins. room doctor. <laughs> yeah. And then also, you know, have that, like, suave, like, mustache and kind of, like, he's oh, like a ladies' man He kind was of banging thing. everybody. I just loved how many, like, things that would be considered big problems for our main character in future movies are just, you gotta, you yeah. gotta take the good with the bad. He's gonna save, the, he's gonna do his best to save the day, but he's also gonna sleep with every woman he knows and have sex with Ellie at least two times before asking the question, hey, how old are you? <laughs> and I was like, that always blows my... I'm like, what? You wait after the second time to then ask that question? I remember the first time that I, I showed my wife this. This uh, is one of the very few Halloween movies that she's actually, like, sat through and, uh, like... It's the best. I, I love showing this to people because, like... <laughs> Anytime you're like, oh, you like weird, like, 80s sci-fi? Let me show you Halloween season. Yeah, and no matter what we say about it on this recording, if you haven't seen it, you'll still be surprised when you watch it. We could tell you everything, and it's still going to blow your mind when, when it happens. But yeah, this movie, this movie diverts expectations <laughs> constantly. And I remember watching it with this the, the rewatch this past time, and my wife happened to come home from work the very first time that the doctor and, and Ellie were getting ready to have sex and it she's just like wow this is this is truly terrible writing that, uh, and i was like honestly terrible writing and for that scene specifically that, yeah. that scene in particular is like uh she's like he's like yeah i'll just sleep in the car and she's like where do you want to sleep and i'm like oh no and is... he goes and he gets he gets dead sexy and goes now that's a stupid question miss whatever and says her yeah. last name and it's like it turns porno so <laughs> fast like it's, all we need to do is a pizza guy delivering a sausage pizza and we'd be on board i'm like um what just what just happens it's it's a very like weird tonal scene anomaly within the the vapor, but like like you said, like this film just like shows all of its cards and then like still has like surprises. They're just like this is the this is the time in the the franchise where I'm like I have so much more reverence for it because like they take these big steps and they commit to it, even if they don't always land. Like and Halloween three, I think, is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Did you? So I feel like a bat, like a stupid fan because I didn't realize I've seen this movie so many times and it wasn't until this time watching it. Do you realize like they tell you why it's called Halloween three in the movie? And I never really caught it till this viewing. I feel like other people know. No, so I've never. The, that. When the announcer is first talking about the silver shamrock masks, he says, come into your store and get the Halloween three, the three new masks that we're selling this year. Like the, the, the masks that silver shamrock, they're dubbed the Halloween three because it's three options for your masks. 
and That's like awesome yeah so it's like they, they kind of wrote that in just to be like yeah it's not halloween part three it's a movie about the halloween three you know like <laughs> it's i I've, I've looked online and apparently fans have known this for years but i've I just never caught it no I, i've it's never the caught that it's either. the beauty of i've watched all of them with the subtitles this time just because i really didn't want to miss anything i usually don't do that but uh so I, I caught it this time and i was like holy shit it's called the halloween three Interesting. It should also be worth mentioning that Tommy Lee Wallace will also go on to give an entire generation of kids nightmares and forever develop a phobia of clowns. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Big time. (laughs) Not just clowns. This movie alone, the bugs. This is the only Halloween movie where I have to divert my eyes from the screen. When when Marge Guterman takes a laser to the face (laughs) and later with the kid... Uh, I mean, actually, we're not. What am I talking about? Where this is a spoiler-filled podcast. We're not trying to hide anything. The okay. People- All right. I was. I was kind of like you know, like like you said, like it's a it's something that like even if we did spoil everything, you'd just be like, yeah, there's no way they put this in a movie. And and uh, honestly, actually, fans, we 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 do have time codes for each installment. So if you starting now, if you want to see Halloween three for yourself, you can just skip to Halloween four. But we're going to talk about the uh, the rest of the movie and how it plays out. So feel free yeah. to skip. Yeah. So to your the, point, yeah. Go, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was gonna go with the evil plan, but you can you can tell me real quick. Uh, I was just gonna say, yeah, like I I'm right there with you. Like there, there's a few times in Halloween films that like I have to skip ahead for certain scenes, and yeah. one scene in particular that we'll talk about way down the line. But this film, this film in particular, like the the button scene, like it's honestly like it's one of the the coolest scenes i think that i've seen in an 80s film yeah i it's just great practical effects but like the ending with the kid like getting the mask and when uh tom atkins character like has to watch this kid basically turn to mush yep i'm just like super uncomfortable the entire time because you get like the book like the roaches and the the spiders and the snakes crawling out of the mask and i'm just like this is great imagery it's makes me feel it's horrifying AF. yeah i can it makes me feel like they're gonna be crawling all over me like that's that's what it like because it's you know it's, <laughs> obviously it's just real bugs but yeah all right so for you folks who stuck around this is batshit crazy so this evil mask maker has been playing this commercial all week with this fucking song that plays, I want to say, 15 times in the movie, and telling kids that if they buy his special masks and all watch this commercial at 8 p.m. on Halloween, there'll be a special giveaway, and his masks have swept the nation, everybody loves them, and his crazy plan is each mask has a tiny little piece of Stonehenge put inside of it, which will allow magics to occur, and when the commercial plays, any kid wearing the mask, well, their head will instantly turn to mush and bugs and spiders and snakes, which in turn will kill their parents, which seemed to happen in the test run. And it's fucking crazy. It's just like, that's what I mean by this movie. You have no goddamn idea where, where we're going at all. It's awesome. Oh, it's, it, it's, it's absolutely bonkers. And it's and hard to watch. Yeah, we didn't even kind of talk to the, the fact, too, is like that there's like a weird subplot where like people that get too close to the investigation somehow turn into like robot lookalikes with yellow blood. Yup, yellow blood who served the main bad guy. So he has an army of evil robots. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> it's literally like, I don't um, know what else to say. Even like, I don't think it's perfect by any means. Like, I, I can, if I was going to be being real critical, there's tons of stuff I could be like. I don't know. I'd give a second pass on that, but as a whole, oh my god, I never, 
I'm never bored. I never. I always walk away happy that I watched Halloween three when it's over. Same. I I think that there there are like a few complaints here and there, but the majority of it is just kind of like. I'm just going to move on and just, like, really embrace the film because, like, it explores, like, the, the camp. It has, like, its own originality. It has, like, its own, like, visual presence. And if a movie can make me, like, make my skin crawl the way that this can, you've done something right as a horror filmmaker. Yeah, absolutely. And and this paced so perfectly, too, where, like, every, every time you think you're going to get an answer to the mystery, it's, like, more mystery. You know, it's like, this guy mysteriously dies in a hospital, so we're like, ooh, I wonder why. Oh, no, he's, he's in the hospital because he got attacked, and then someone comes in and brutally takes his skull apart with their bare hands. And then you're like, oh, shit, why did that happen? And then you think you're going to chase down that guy and find out why he did it, and then that guy gets into a car, pulls out a gas can, lights himself on fire, and you're just like, where the f- where are we going? <laughs> like, it's like you can't. And that's all within 18 minutes. So you're just like, I I guess we have bad guys who light themselves on fire. And then, like we said, spoiler, there, it turns out he was a robot. There's tons of robots. Most people are robots in this movie. Yeah, um, it, it's go, bonkers yeah. wild. Yeah, it's insane. So one thing, this movie actually, I just watched an 80s horror movie for the first time that um, was so similar to this that it, it, it had to have been inspiration. But have you ever seen this stuff? It's pretty famous. I haven't, and I know that they put it on Shutter. That I'm just like that's why I, I watched it. I watched watch it like this. I watched it a month and a half ago. It's it's a it's a satire, and I think it failed because people didn't realize it's supposed to be a comedy. Um, so it's not a scary movie by any means, but it's, it's more of a comedy about consumerism. But watch it and like text me after because I want to know what you think. It's so similar to Halloween three in terms of the over like this kind of grand global plot using consumerism to take people over, a kind of conspiracy. Spoiler alert, there's an army of bad guys who are made out of the stuff in that one that you think are real and turn out to be robots. Like It's just like there's a lot in there where I'm just like, oh, I'm seeing Halloween 3 DNA all over the stuff. So yeah, I was, I was curious if you've seen it before. No, but I'm going to watch it and, and text you at some point. This yeah, week. yeah, I'm, I'm very curious. But uh, pff, yeah, I mean, what else to even say about Halloween 3 besides it's awesome? Uh, Please go watch it. <laughs> yeah. Just put it to you that way. Oh, and this one also... All that Celtic Sim Samhain stuff we were talking about in the last movie really comes to light in this one. Um, apparently, the original script by Nigel Neal was a lot more kind of cerebral and less slashery. I don't know. Do you know the whole story behind how this one was written? Uh, I didn't. I I just honestly always assumed, at least on like, so I have the Shout Factory Blu-rays, and I talked about like the making of on this one, and kind of talked about like how. Tommy Lee Wallace really ended up kind of suiting himself behind like the writing and directing credits on this movie. And to my understanding, like he had kind of like put his time in um, and they're like, here you go, kind of do whatever you want to do. But I didn't know there was actually like original writer with this one. Yeah, there's a, it was a sci-fi writer. His name is Nigel Neal. He might be Australian, maybe British. And, you know, his original script's not out there anymore, but apparently he, he wrote the first draft of this and put in a lot of this kind of Celtic Irish magic. And But his script was way different and nowhere even near a slasher movie. It didn't have an army of evil robots killing people or any of that stuff. And the studio just thought it was, you know, for lack of a better word, probably too artsy for the series. And they're like, this isn't really going to sell well. So they re- rewrote his script. John Carpenter and Tommy Lee Wallace took a pass at it. 
and Nigel Neal was so upset. He just said, take my name off this. I don't want anything to do with this movie anymore. I don't like what you guys did with my story and walked away. And I don't remember why, but for some reason, John Carpenter like legally couldn't take writing credit. I, I, it's in taking shape. I just I lost it. I read it and forgot. But it all basically came down where Tommy Lee Wallace was just the only one left. So he took writing credit, even though he, he admittedly did the least amount of work on the script. It was just like it was like a weird politics thing where legally he could only one take writing credit like left on board. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah, there's there's a different version of Halloween 3 that exists out there, but that's where the original Cochrane and all that stuff came from and then they kind of made it a little bit more of like 80s slasher. You know, they kind of mixed the two worlds. Okay. Uh, I would be curious to like kind of like see that and kind of because I mean like it's it's interesting that like they're like yeah like th- this won't sell when this film was such a <laughs> yeah, financial seriously. bomb and it and it had to have so, like, like we, a we second need, life we, we need Marge Guterman to take, take a laser right to the head honestly also too uh I read or I listened to a podcast where this film kind of like really could have been like even more meta than it really was instead of having the the three masks that we got with the witch, the skull, and the pumpkin. Yeah. You could have had like different versions of Michael. Oh, that would have been cool. Or even if Michael's was just one of the three, you know, just for like yeah. a little shout out, that would have been cool. Yeah, it is hard to believe in this world that like those masks are so generic. There's no way they would take the world by storm. Like everyone's seen a witch, a pumpkin, like, you know, and it's, there's such little variety. I feel like kids want to be different than other kids when they dress up on Halloween. So it's a, it's stuff you just have to buy. Like you just have to like, you have to just buy the concept. But yeah, the masks aren't very impressive. Like if I was a kid, I wouldn't run to one of those three personally. <laughs> I feel like every year, at least, like, even from, like, a cosplay, like, Comic-Con standpoint, like, there's always that, like, one, like, one costume that you're going to see every year, and, like, the year of Suicide Squad's a great example, like, there was so many Harley Quinns that year, Mm -hmm. and then the next year you got it, and there were so many Pennywise, and I feel like... And even like growing up, like you'd have like years where it was like, oh, it's it's the Green Ranger growing up in the 90s that, you know, we want to be like or, you know, just a number of like hocus pocus. You yeah, know, you want to be, be something you, you want to be something that's like an, an IP attached to it. You know, it's something that you like watching. Yeah, not some generic uh, silver shamrock mask like yeah. this. Like, it, it is kind of hard to believe that like this would be like sweeping the nation. There, there'd be way more Darth Vader's and Luke Skywalker's out there in 1981 than, than pumpkins and witches. Copyrights, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Well, we can't compare Michael Myers in this one like the others because he's not here. Um, so you got any final words on three before we move on? Please go watch it. Yeah, guys. I'm telling you, it's so freaking good. I know it seems like without Michael Myers, why would you watch it? That's not true. You got to check this one out. Just see it to believe it. It's fantastic. All right. Next up, we have Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, released in 1988. So much, you know, finally a break. We've kind of seen 78, 81, 82. We had a little break a couple of years. Written by Alan B. McElroy, directed by Dwight H. Little, and starring Donald Pleasance, Daniel Harris, Ellie Cornell, and this time as The Shape, we have George P. Wilbur. And the plot of this one is, it's been 10 years since the events of the first two Halloween films. Michael Myers has remained in a coma since the fiery ending of Part 2. Laurie Strode has since died in a car accident, but leaving behind her daughter Jamie, who's living with a foster family. Upon hearing that he has a living niece, Michael awakens to once again return to Haddonfield. 
So yeah, this one is the producer saying, I'm sorry for Halloween 3, here's exactly <laughs> what you want. <laughs> it's also interesting to, to note that, like, yeah, like they had to, like, physically put Michael Myers' name into the title. And the poster also, is his, it's like half is, the poster is his, is his face, face, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's probably one of the most iconic images that's used more than anything else when it comes to specifically talking about Michael Myers. For sure. But this one also, too, is interesting to talk about because it, it moves away from Universal at this point. So the so the Akkads basically uh, hold the rights and the Akkad had the Akkads held the rights. Mustafa Akkad, that's the guy's name. Yep, holds the rights to Halloween one. Then it goes to H Universal for two and three, and then it reverts back to him. Um, yeah, it was basically it, it was like a it was like a three way ownership between John Carpenter, Erwin Yoblins, and Mustafa Akkad. And it was always kind of a struggle between those three, like of what they were gonna make. And now this is the first time it's fully in the Akkad estate. Which it oh, will remain basically until this day. Yeah, it it the ownership is about to get a little bit messier as we get into the nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we but, might have uh, some we might have some unfavorable people producing the movies, but <laughs> it's, yeah, this this history one, is this, history. <laughs> this one returns the film to its roots. Yes, with 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 it being indie, and uh, I I kind of want to hear your thoughts on this one because I I feel like this film is. Kind of like Halloween too, where it's like you have hardcore fans that truly love it, and then you have hardcore fans that are like, it, it, it's all right. Yeah. So I I do enjoy this one a lot, but I will say it has dropped from being what I used to consider my favorite sequel to now being more towards the middle. Where I really I don't know when I was younger, I always just loved the return to form to this. It probably was the same brain that told me to just not watch Halloween three, where I was like, I just need more Michael, and I also just remember because i was born in 1990 again this one comes out 88 the sequel comes out 89 they're very similar to each other and both star daniel harris so i just have a lot of these young nostalgic memories of like da watching daniel harris in these movies and i've just always had a great like kind of just like love for the return to form of this one but now every time i watch it similar to the way every time i watch three i like it more i like this one a little bit less every time i watch it and there's certain aspects of it that just just kind of ruin the mystique of hollow of michael myers to me a little bit where i i think they kind of overuse him and in, in a sense to make up for him not being in the last movie and just some of some of the actions just don't feel very halloweeny to me i think this movie simultaneously has one of my least favorite third acts with my favorite ending so it's like it's a, i'm very mixed where i don't love most of what happens at the end of this movie except for the last chunk which we'll get to um, so, uh, yeah, it's a weird one for me. I like a lot of it, and then there's parts of it I just can't get behind. Where are you? I'm, I'm a little bit, like, reverse, but, like, I still, like, kind of revert to a little bit how you view this movie. This movie is not outright my favorite sequel, but it's, it's one of, it's, it's higher on my list than, like, a mid-tier kind of a Halloween 2, where I think that the performance from, like, Daniel Harris is, like, really good. Amazing, yeah. I will say this before we even get to like our thoughts on the Michael Myers. I hate the mask in this one. I hate the mask. I hate it so much. The mask. Also, spoiler alert: I don't love George Wilbur in it either. So, but we'll, we'll get <laughs> yeah. there. We'll get there. I uh, I I paused it like so a few years ago. Victims and villains. We did a like rewatch and we kind of release like episodes on like certain uh entries into the series and i think we ended up doing one for four and 
one of the things that I pointed out in that podcast was I was like, it's just like someone took a like, instead of like going for like William Shatner, they they took Mr. Data and just like <laughs> dumbed it down to like, you couldn't notice it. But like, this is the great value of Michael Myers. Masks. Yeah. Like it's I think truly terrible. I think I've owned the better looking ones that I bought for Halloween. It's pure white, which is just like, it's like, it's too white where it like brights up a room almost like any, any light that touches it, it just gets, it just gets absorbed, like reflected off. So I think it's way too bright. And it has like a lack of a neck that I can't really describe. And I also learned when I was reading my trivia was that George Wilbur felt he wasn't big enough to play the shape. So he was actually wearing pads to make himself look bulkier. And I think, because I've always been like, this Michael has no neck, and I don't know why. And I think it's because he was wearing pads in his shoulders. And then the, plus the mask was just built a little weird. So, like, I don't know. He just has this weird look to him where his shoulders are hunched up. And I just, I'm, I don't I don't like it. Like, it's, it's weird that I harp on it this much. But for a movie, I really like so much in this movie. But I hate the Michael Myers. And it's rough for me because it's, you know, I want to love it. Michael almost kind of takes you out in certain scenes. Like, there's a scene in particular where he rises up the side of Jamie Jamie's bed. Yeah. And just kind of, like, looks at the camera, and I'm like, I know this is paying homage to the first film, and this is supposed to be scary, but this mask kind of almost borders comical for me. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know why I should be afraid of it. Yeah, and I don't really know why it's always so difficult for a lot of these filmmakers to nail down the mask. Like, I get that the first movie, no one knew it was going to be a success, so they didn't properly preserve it. They didn't like, oh, well, you'll be using this for the next 40 years. But I don't know. I feel like in other franchises, like, when people recreate stuff, they can, you know, use photos and images and kind of do a good job. This franchise blows my mind at how different Michael's mask looks. And at least in this one is the story reason that it is a new mask. So it does at least track story-wise. It's you see Michael go to a store and grab a brand new mask. It's not the same one from the other movie, but it doesn't make up for the fact that it looks bad. <laughs> yeah, and so it, it's it's weird to me to your point that like you can have something that is complex as Freddy Krueger still looks almost virtually the same from yeah. movie to movie. And on the opposite end, you also have, like, even Pinhead, like, still has, like, a very, like, intricate look to him. Yeah, even in the direct-to-video sequels. Like, even in the real cheap ones. Still looks real good. Yeah, he looks just like Pinhead. I'm like, there he is. And this is is literally a white mask, and we (laughs) we can't even, like get this down like what the heck bro and we, and we know how it was made like you can't track another kirk mask and just start from scratch like you know like i don't understand uh, it's a kirk again another shatner mask <laughs> especially by this time like i would imagine that like there's a lot of anticipation buildings which also means there's a lot of potentially merchandise coming out for it but i don't know if the merchandise really started until like the late 90s when uh, dimension actually en- ended up owning co-owning this franchise yeah but you know taking the mask hatred out um i do love a lot about this movie uh, and we're, we're being hard right off the bat um it has just honestly some so many iconic moments of this series that i attribute to michael myers uh michael putting his thumb through someone's forehead i will always remember that i uh, just that's not something you see not something that's possible but it's still awesome um i think Again, the ending, uh, I don't want to get to it just yet, just in case people haven't watched it, but we will definitely talk about it. I fucking love. And this is, of all the movies, my personal favorite um, Donald Pleasant's performance as Sam Loomis and my favorite Loomis portrayal. I think this is the perfect sweet spot of 
unhinged Loomis, and also like he's still not a ma- the maniac that he will be in five. <laughs> so no. I, I and but like you know because he's been burned, I love the look they give him, and then I buy his mania a little bit. Like he's been through hell, so I get why he's so insane at this point. Not insane, but adamant that that he must stop michael yeah i i think you're you're right like this is like the the perfect sam loomis portrayal because it's it's not quite to the to the nicholas cage insanity that we'll get from him in later films but it's also not quite this like somber uh, nature that we got in the first two films yeah and, he's and in the first like two it's the first two it's, really it's well. kind of hard to even believe him because you know like you don't no one's really seen what michael can do and but like by the time four comes around you're like oh yeah this guy's he's right we have to stop this maniac so you're kind of more on his team a little bit i also think it's um this this film too uh has one of the the best loomis's michael sequences yeah where they're at the gas station Mm -hmm. and that brawl just between the two of them is like one of my favorite sequences between michael and any character i think it's just it's really well shot it's choreographed and staged really well and it it just kind of has that nice callback to the uh, ending of part two where it's like boom here we go yeah and michael's back kind of entry it's it's probably one of the most like the badass like returns we've seen in this franchise yeah it's great to character wise too to have loomis see michael that early so then like he knows it's on it's not like a hunch he has that michael might come back like he's he's seen what he can do one of the things that when i was saying that there's parts of this movie that don't just don't feel Halloween to me. And, um, and for me, it's like the movie's like obsession with explosions. I don't really care for the gas station. Blo- like I love that scene, but that very end with the explosion of him driving out and Michael throwing the worker into the power lines to cut off the power to the town. It's things like that where I just feel it's a little too un Michael for me. Like I know he's a calculator, but it just seemed like a weird it seemed like too calculated of a plan, and then again, explosions and Michael for me—that's not really my thing. I like I like quiet kills. I like sneak ups. So yeah, it, those moments I'm not a fan of. Yeah, to your point, the further you get away from Carpenter's original vision, the further away we get of like how Michael actually is, because Michael just kind of like in this this film particularly is kind of like he's calculated, but he's also like with the shoulder pads, like he's also like he's big and he's scary and he's a menacing threat. And that's not really what made the the shape so terrifying to begin with. Yeah. It was the fact that he was an ordinary guy and just looked like an ordinary guy. And this is kind of the, the misconception that I think carries into from this, this film moving on all the way to uh, Rob Zombie's films is that you have to make him a brute in order to make him a, truly terror and i think a large portion of that is again looking at how friday the 13th handled jason Voorhees in those days yeah is jason was just a machine but then it's weird because you also have freddie and we're we're still a year away from from hellraiser but like both freddie and pinhead are fairly kind of kind of tiny guys yeah like they're they're slender but i think the closest uh, uh argument you could make to like being a brute also would be leatherface yeah people tend to forget the trickster aspect of michael in the first movie mm-hmm. of you know the setting up the bodies is the one thing but the ghost thing you know like it's it's a very weird where i've always loved that moment because to me it made me think like well yes it's a pure evil 
you know, Walking Evil, Nothing Behind the Eyes, he's still kind of a little kid in certain ways because he never really grew up. So if there was any humanity in Michael, it's the fact that he's like playing tricks on people that he's killing instead of just killing them. And yeah, so I thought this movie moved a little bit more away from that and more into the kind of hulking monster who can hold on to the bottom of a car like uh, Sideshow Bob or, or whatever and then and, and climb his way up and murder a bunch of hillbillies. Uh, yeah. So, like, I like that sequence. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's fun to watch, but, yeah, it's pretty... It, it ruins the mystique of, like, sneaky Michael. You know, it's it's a very it's a very kind of, like, left of turn for, for what we've normally seen him do. Yeah, and you kind of don't really see him return to that until, I would argue, 2018. Yeah, like, because that aspect of him just largely is lost because if people are like, oh, we need a higher body count, we need to make it more brutal. And it's like, well, that's not actually what makes Halloween Halloween. Yeah. And I think that this is this also too kind of taking notes from Halloween three is this is the the part of the franchise where it starts to have these really unique ideas and it kind of continues to throw like i don't want to say randomness but like bold ideas out there on like how to take this franchise and this is also the kickoff of the thorn trilogy that we're going to get over four five and six yeah even though i'm pretty sure there's nothing thorn related like uh, visually in this movie i think i think like it kicks it off but they really like you don't see that symbol you know and folks will explain what we're talking about when we get to five, but I don't think you see that symbol on him. I think that's that was created for five. You don't. Uh, you get the ideas of Thorn with Jamie in the H- end, and him waking up the yeah. second he hears that he has a living relative. Yeah, agreed. Um, so I've I've been harping on me not liking the final act of this movie. Um, it's not even the fact. So this movie, the way they take down Michael, is basically the police force show up like almost as an army and gun Michael down with everything they have. I don't have a problem with that. I do just don't like how it's shot. Like, I just find the way they show Michael taking the bullets, like, it almost seems like Michael's reacting to loud noises around him. I don't feel like he's taking the damage. It it just feels a little kind of, like, cheesy to me. I don't know. What do you think uh, about Michael taking the hail of bullets? Like, like when you rewatch it, it's, you know, I obviously run a podcast here, but it's just, he's doing like a lot of flinching. They don't put any squibs on him. Like they, I feel like they just make no effort to make me feel like they're gunning down the shape. I think there's better examples of that idea later on in the franchise. Agreed. Yeah. I know what you mean. And I agree. <laughs> but uh, to your point, I think that is, is it this movie or is it, is it part five that has the, the angry mob? This I, one. Yeah. Yeah. This okay, one. That's this right. one. Yeah, we yeah, can talk so about that. We skipped over that. Just just to kind of like clarify, like there's like a there's a sequence where like basically the police force in Haddonfield is just gone. Uh including Sheriff Brackett, which I we didn't even talk about. Like, how do you feel about the absence of, of Brackett in this movie? Yeah, I didn't at the time I never really cared, but I'll be honest, my love for Brackett kind of came out of the Rob Zombie Brad Durf bracket so i've kind of like retroactively gone back and fallen in love with that character i never personally gave him too much mind like i like in two he does have that moment where he finds that his daughter's been killed and it is emotional but like nowadays i love sheriff bracket he's one of my favorite characters but i think a lot of that has to do with future installments so to me i didn't really i didn't care that it was uh i forget his name in this one the new sheriff meeker yeah i i think for me it makes it a little bit more formulaic 
uh-huh. that sense to where it follows the the tropes and kind of the formula of the slashers. I agree with that. Yeah, it's because just like, here's the new guy he follows. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it, it's it's very it's very forgettable. Like meeker like the fact that like neither one of us like had to like really like think for a second about like what his name what is yeah like, exactly I, I love this movie but he's like he's such a like a carpet copy character of bracket just without the emotion and that to me i feel like kind of like just damn i don't know i, I agree man i didn't even like, he even has a daughter like, like his daughter is one of the teenage girls in the movie. Like it's it's a very carbon copy Jesus. Yeah, and and then like it just it it makes it feel like so forgettable like portions of this movie. Yeah. But the angry so like to kind of put it in context like there's a scene there's a point in the film where the sheriffs and again we watched eleven of these movies so I don't yeah. remember exactly <laughs> how if like they're either shot or like they just end up like quitting. And they're they're just out of the picture at this point to where Brackett's like quote unquote army is now a bunch of angry drunk guys yeah, with shotguns. Much, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that's kind of like his police force. And uh this this la- to your point, like I, I think this last act like has great ideas, but it just has terrible execution, like the whole like uh, we're gonna shoot Michael during a high speed car chase. Like, yeah, just kind of seems too weird for me. It just yeah ruins like the climax. Like, it ruins like the kind of horror kind of like you know you it always goes back to Lori being hunted by Michael in the first movie, and it just mm-hmm. it's so far removed from that. The only uh, scene I do really like that the tension always works for me is when they're running from Michael on the rooftop, and uh, uh, Rachel has Jamie on her back. And they're running on the slanted rooftop, slipping, and like I do feel the tension. I do kind of like that moment there. Yeah, I think I, that I, like, I that that's how you do Michael right. There. Like you're in a situation where you're off balance, you can't really move fast. He's gaining on you. I, I like those kind of moments. Yeah, I, I agree there. I think that I don't really have anything else to say. I think it, it's a really good. But you want to jump into this ending? Uh, yeah, but real quick, um, I don't know how I have Masha always jokes on the podcast that I have face blindness because I'm the worst at like recognizing actors from other stuff I've seen. I've seen this movie a million times. I've seen Dazed and Confused two million times. I never realized that Brady in this movie is Don in Dazed and Confused. I don't know if you're a fan of Dazed and Confused. I haven't seen Dazed and Confused in probably like 15 years. Okay, it's not going to stick in me. But one of the main guys is Brady from this movie. And it's just, I can't believe the amount of times I've watched both and never put two and two together. It's insane. That's amazing. Um, But yeah, that's all I really want to say. But the ending of this movie, man. um, I mean, I've already showed my cards that I love it. Where do you stand on it? So actually, uh, let me just let me explain to the viewers in case they haven't seen it. Um, the end of this movie is an homage to the opening of the first movie. We get a first person view of somebody walking around the house, putting on a clown mask, grabbing scissors and then stabbing Jamie's mom. And then it cuts to Jamie now in her own clown costume from the movie, standing there with a bloody knife in her hand as Loomis basically pulls out a gun to murder this eight year old to stop the cycle of a new Michael being born. And that's the the ending of this movie. Uh, where do you fall on that ending? Uh, before I answer that question, it should also be worth noting that they plant that seed fairly early. Or they take her uh, costume shopping, and she's like trying to find something that she wants to wear, and kind of goes through like a lot of generic costumes, and yep. then lands on that one. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating choice that. Well, and we see her looking in the mirror, mirror, right? And we see, like, a quick image of young Michael wearing the clown costume. Yep, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
They do uh, see I, I truly love it. And I, I will tell you, in my car, um, I have an air freshener that hangs from my mirror. And I actually have the bloody Jamie Lloyd mask. Oh, that's freshener. awesome. Um, I'll take a picture of it and I'll send it to you uh, tomorrow when I go to work. But yeah, I truly love that ending. And it's this ending, particularly here in the concepts that it explores in this very brief five minute uh epilogue i is part of is part of the reason why i loathe part five. Oh my god dude we are on the same page but yeah agreed um and and we'll, we'll kind of talk about it here in a few minutes but like the idea of this young girl carrying not only the franchise but like containing that the bloodline is uh cursed like it it hints on like actual like things that like you know stuff like this can't be heretical if we're not willing to address it yep agreed and from a filmmaking standpoint too this is the greatest way to do like a callback in a sequel sometimes i find the sequels to be a little easy where they just write a bunch of callbacks to stuff we liked already but this forwards the story it's logical like you said they seed it early on and it like yeah just flips an inverse it's the perfect way for a sequel to do a callback from something in the original without just seeming like they're stealing from it or just doing it because they don't have their own ideas it's it's fucking great and i i I literally sit and wonder where halloween 5 could have gone if they stuck with this ending like you know we'll explain why they don't but it's oh my god it's my after the ending of the first one which is groundbreaking this is my second favorite ending to any halloween sequel like, I, yeah. I, think, I think it's perfect. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think that this movie is, it, it just presents that idea so incredibly well. And like you said, like, it, it plants the seeds very subtly throughout the remainder of the film that not only are you having a young girl that's really struggling with this, but you're also struggling with this baggage of family like there's a great scene where like she's coming out of class and like being bullied for her uncle being the boogeyman yeah and you can kind of see like she deals with this on like a daily basis and i think that this movie just presents such great ideas and executions that would have made this franchise really ahead of its time because it showed that you didn't have to rely on michael myers to make a halloween film but you can still kind of carry on that idea and they've explored some of that stuff in the comics that i'll we'll talk about later on but the idea that this is we could have had a jamie lloyd centric film i would have loved to see jamie lloyd grow up into this role yeah and it's cut short very quickly Agreed, agreed. I'd love to hear about the comics as we go forward because I haven't read those. But cool, we already discussed the mask and the shape, so you want to move out of this one? Let's do it. All right, cool. All right, once again, trucking along. We are now going to go to Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, released in 1989, written by Michael Jacobs, Sherm Bitterman, and Dominique Athenin Gerard, which I can never say his name correct. But he's also the director, uh, so I'm not going to try it again. Uh, starring Donald Pleasance, Danielle Harris, Ellie Cornell, and this time Don Shanks as The Shape. This movie picks up one year after the events of Part 4. Jamie Lloyd is now institutionalized and mute after the traumatic events of the last film's ending. Michael awakens to once again hunt down his niece as she learns of some sort of psychic link between herself and her uncle. 
So I heard you use the word loathe earlier when you brought up this movie. Uh, especially after reading Taking Shape 2. I am um it should also be worth mentioning that like Halloween four was like a return to form for this franchise and really rejuvenated people's interest in it and so much so that theater chains actually basically came to uh Mustafa uh Akkad and were basically like, Hey, we will help fund your movie on two terms. First, it has to be delivered by Halloween next year. And two, Insane. it also cannot have Jamie Lloyd as a killer. And that is the reason why I hate this film. Is because you had such potential and you threw it away for a lackluster, for lack of a better word, this film plays out like a, a Friday the 13th sequel. Yeah. Um, I agree with what you said, except my only disagreement is that's not the reason I hate the film. That's one of the reasons I hate this film, because I really, this is, spoiler alert, my least favorite, man. I don't, uh, Halloween 5 is a rough one for me, but I totally agree. After that setup of the last one, this, to, to pull it back. I, I get, you know, you don't want to make Jamie the killer because you want Michael Myers in it. So let Michael Myers survive, but still have Jamie kind of be some kind of killer. I just feel like you had so much opportunity to really do something new. Like, in a not cheesy way, Michael could have had a sidekick. You know what I mean? They actually had it set yes. up for that to be cool. And they also retconned it to where, like, Jamie doesn't actually kill her mother. Yep, she I didn't just like, wounds her. I didn't like that either. You, you could have had her kill her and still done this movie. You know what I mean? But it just... It's that thing of, you know, my least favorite thing of, like, superhero stuff when people die and then come back later. It's like, you just kind of, like, do this amazingly shocking thing just to, like, pull it back and be like, actually, everyone's kind of happy. You know, she didn't die. Like, you know, she's a little traumatized, but she's not evil. All this stuff. It's, yeah, it's a letdown. I don't even know where to begin with this movie. Even the fact that, like, so Rachel comes back. Rachel was the final girl from the previous entry. She yep. was also the step... I guess um, she's technically so a foster sister. The foster movie sister. the movie says stepsister constantly, but that's not what that means. Yeah, that's that's kind of the <laughs> word I was looking for was foster sister. And uh, so basically, she's in like the first like fifteen minutes of this movie. Yeah, and I kind of feel like they handled her the, the like the transition of like Friday the Thirteenth to like Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, where With you Alice? Still have yeah. like lingering like elements of the previous film, but you're like, ah, I want to trim the fat. So we're going to spend some time with this girl and ultimately kill her. Yeah. And it's one of the most unsatisfying parts about this movie. Yeah. Agreed. I love, uh, Rachel's character was so good in the last one. Her kill is bland. Like the whole scene's not even like climactic or really scary. They do my least favorite thing, which I hated with Lori, is, like, they don't even give her a moment to even, like, grasp what's happening, to see her see the shape and, like, really kind of, like, holy shit, he's back. It's just, like, a quick death with some scissors. And then every they pass her off to basically this character, Tina, who, I mean, I'm not the first one to say this, but I think she might be my least favorite character in the whole franchise. I find Tina unbearable the entire time she's on camera. And nothing Tina does, I don't see why Rachel couldn't have done instead. Like, why they even killed Rachel to give the movie to Tina. Tina stinks. <laughs> I don't understand the decisions made in this. And I I didn't know there was three writers in this movie until you said it. So yep. I'm also kind of like, what if they just ended up like taking... Like, the director, who's a co-writer on this movie, took two competing visions and was just like, I'm just going to piece together the parts I like the most 
And then I'll add my own uh, narrative and lines in here to kind of make it a little bit more cohesive. And that just doesn't work. Yeah, from all accounts, I mean, I obviously don't know this guy personally, but from reading Taking Shape, it really just seemed like he didn't really care about the franchise and just wanted to make like what he, what he thought worked without thinking of it as like a whole. And the biggest examples of that is like the Myers house in this movie is just a different house. In every other frame, in every other installment, they make it look like it did in the first movie, and it's the outside's different, the inside's different. And when at the ass, the director just said like he wanted it to look like a gothic castle, and he wanted the imagery of like Dracula and and that kind of stuff. So he was just like, so I did it. I just you know he didn't care about like continuity and stuff like that. So it's weird in a franchise where Mustafa Kad is very protective over the rules of Halloween and what you can and can't do with Michael that he kind of like let this guy just kind of run with it. And in my opinion, I didn't really care for his decisions, <laughs> you know. So, like, every few years, like, I will end up doing a rewatch on this series. And this is always the, the part of the series that, like, I hate coming back to. But, like, you yourself, like, I'm a completionist. So, like, yeah. I, it feels absent and, like, weird without it. Especially because it it's the middle chapter of a entire trilogy within the series. Like, this this film... I'm just gonna show my cards now. This is this is the lowest <laughs> ever gets. Our rankings are gonna be funny, <laughs> and uh, I'll explain why that answer is not resurrection. But this movie is. Oh me, I yeah, I, I know why. Yeah, <sighs> this movie is so terrible, man. Like <sighs> this movie commits the sin to me because on paper there are worse entries, but they're so batshit. I love them. This one is boring as dirt, man. Like there, it's just like. It just plays it so safe that nothing is exciting. And, like, even watching it this time, I texted my friend. I was like, this is a bummer, man. I'm not having a good time watching Halloween 5. <laughs> and and it took me, like, I didn't even watch it all in one sitting. I kind of, like, watched it for 40 minutes and then kind of, like, took a break and came back. I just, like, it's, it's, there's, it's, there's not, there's very few sequences. I mean, honestly, the, the garbage shoot, se- or the laundry shoot sequence is, like, the only saving grace for me, and I don't even love it. It's just, like, it's the only thing that I can re- even remember having a fondness for, and I do love Daniel Harris, and I do think she's doing a good job, but I just don't think she was given anything interesting to do, so it's like she can't save it on her own, <laughs> you know? So this line, this film in particular, it's it's weird, because, like, there are such, like, these, like, highs and lows with Halloween, but yet there are things that... I I find myself as a viewer and as a fan that I'm like constantly like I am right here like this is this is probably this film in particular probably has one of my favorite Loomis lines in it is um where he's describing to the sheriff he's like I knew in my heart that hell wouldn't ha- wouldn't take him like it's that's I, one of my I, I wrote best that down yeah li- like favorite lines that it's, of, yeah, it was it was I watched him burn it. and I hoped he would burn in hell but I knew in my heart yeah. hell would not have him I was like oh that's so fucking awesome <laughs> it is but it's also weird like the last act of this movie how like he's he's trying to get like really vulnerable with him and it just like this doesn't seem like the Loomis we've spent the last three movies like getting to know it's it's not and it's I. The only part of that I don't, when I say like there's no parts where it's like so bad it's good, I do kind of enjoy hysterically unhinged Loomis. Where in this movie, I find him to be so off the walls where he's so ready to like use little kids as bait. Like he, he has no, <laughs> he has, his altruism has kind of gone away to a point where he's just obsessed with getting Michael. And it's funny to watch, but yeah, I don't think it works too good. 
No. Yeah, it's no, not. It, yeah. And I don't know. I, I don't remember weird. like reading about this specifically, but this movie it doesn't even have like fun kills to fall back on. I find like most of the kills are very bloodless and off camera. And timeline wise, this falls around the time when Friday the Thirteenth gets a little boring in that angle too, because I think the MPAA was getting real angry around the late eighties about slashers and started to boil it down. Because with Friday the Thirteenth, the first four ramp up violence wise and up to tom savini four is my favorite of those and the effects are so good and then five six seven and eight the kills get toned down because of mpaa stuff um so i'm wondering if that's what this happened to this one too because yeah you don't even have that to fall back on like that's not we've already discussed that's not my favorite part of halloween but at least when they're boring i can see a head explode or something like this yeah. one it's like the kills in the barn are boring and bloodless like killing rachel's boring and bloodless and I like Michael driving cars. We don't really talk about that. He's the only slasher that drives almost in every movie. But too much Michael driving in this one. And like, and too much of basically seeing him behind the wheel. It ruins the mystique, in my, in my opinion. 100%. Like, I, I'm, I have, like, my, my issues with, like, the ruining the mystique of who Michael is. Yeah. Talk about it when we get there. But... Uh, you're you're 100% right like it's so bizarre of like a narrative choice to just constantly have him behind the wheel like so much and also <laughs> speaking of michael like we have to like talk about like this movie retcons but it also like somehow answers like this like long mysterious question that a lot of viewers have had about like what michael does between like each each holiday yeah. And this one, he basically is like, would you say he's in a coma? I mean, you could use that word, but without the lack of like medical attention, is it a coma? Like, because he just lives in a shack, like sleeping for a yeah, year. Yeah, but the man in black's taking care of him. Is that what's happening? Because I thought, it, what, what about the hermit man who he kills when he wakes up? No, there's no, just no, some, you're, some, you're some right, random right. guy so, finds him. So the random guy finds him is kind of like a hermit and then like spends like the, like, basically like the last like, the next year are kind of like either nursing him back to health or yeah, like, that, it's like implied, but we don't see it. Like, but yeah, it's yeah. implied that he's kind of like taking care of him. And this is kind of like the first like entry point into like the, the thorn ideology that we're going to see explored in uh, the curse of Michael Myers. Yeah. And just like mysticism in general. I mean, there's a psychic link. He seems to wake up on Halloween as if he's being activated. Like, yeah, we've never really seen, like, yeah. he woke up when he heard Jamie Lloyd in the fourth one, but you could still... That doesn't necessarily... You don't go to magic right away. You just think, like, oh, he hears he has a niece. But, yeah, this one, it's almost as if, like, yeah, if it's not Halloween, he's not activated. How do you feel about the idea of making Jamie Lloyd a mute? I don't like this it. One? Yeah, I, I, I just found, like... I, that, to me, felt like the consolation prize because they knew that they couldn't make her evil. So they were like, we got to do something. So, like, now she's mute. But it, it doesn't really come to anything. And then, you know, then she like I just found all those scenes of her trying to describe what she's feeling. And then her friend, the boy with the stutter, is trying to describe it. I just found them just like, it's not, I don't know. It, it, I don't get, I don't get, I wasn't excited. Like, oh, what's she going to say? Oh, cookie lady? Oh, okay, we're, we're there. You know, it's like, <laughs> I didn't care for the mute, mute aspect. It was no. something, but it was, you know, it's like when you want something real good and they give you a little, just like a little treat to be like, yeah, take that instead. Yeah, me neither. It, it seems like a weird narrative decision. And I think you're right. Like a lot of that has to just kind of do with the theatrical deal that they were, uh, that they were trying to secure to where it's like, well, we've kind of established this, but we're also going to retcon it. So 
the only other answer is that we're just going to make her so traumatized from this event that she's just going to be mute the entire time. Yeah. And it seems like such an, an odd choice to do when you could have, like, explored that so much more because, like, childhood, like, trauma and, like, also, like, how that repression plays out is could have been one of the most fascinating and satisfying plot threads that this franchise had to offer yeah agreed and even if they didn't want to make jamie a killer which you know i understand from a marketing suit perspective like i get it but you could the movie still could have been about her struggling with that and even if she didn't kill anyone she could have been like fighting the urge or like you know really trying to figure out who she was but instead they just didn't go that route at all and then it was like why did she even stab her Besides this weird psychic link, yeah. I keep saying psychic link. They basically just every once in a while when Michael does something, Jamie can like see through his eyes. But it's uh, it's not consistent and doesn't really build to anything. The psychic connection between the two of them is really weird. The next the next film gets even weirder. Yeah. So like I don't know. It, it's it doesn't really this film just doesn't do anything for me. So like even having that psychic connection, like I think it has great ideas, but it just has, like you said, like just really bland execution. Yeah, like like have it gags. have it pay off in the third act if you're gonna put it in. Like I'm thinking of like in fr- Friday Seven when Jason fights the girl with basically Carrie's powers. It's not a great movie and it's kind of boring leading up to it, but at least it builds up to what you want, which is a psychic character fighting Jason. And like, you know, so say what you will about that movie, at least like it pays off on the things it plans. But like, not that I wanted Jamie uh, Jamie Lloyd moving stuff with her mind, but like she could have used her link to somehow either trick Michael or like learn what he's going to do and do, but like nothing. They don't bring up the psychic link for the last act at all. And I'm just like, what is it? It's, I think it really shows that this is the only Halloween movie that was made in one year. We've never had that before where, uh, I guess Halloween 3, but that one was so different. But like, you know, where you have like a one and then just like within, like you said, by next Halloween, have a finished film. It's rushed, you know, and it's just, it doesn't, it wasn't really that thought out. Yeah, I think the only other series that's really done that would be Saul. And yep. Saul was episodic, so you're you're literally watching something unfold year in year out to the point where like the marketing was like, if it's Halloween, it's got to be Saul. Yeah, and that was I think made with the hindsight, like knowing that this story will play out every year. So like the Halloweens weren't made like that. Really, these newest ones are the first time we're ever seeing that. We've never seen Halloweens where they knew what the next one was gonna be. <laughs> we just keep seeing people make these crazy endings and then passing it off and being like, all right, someone else figure out what's next. So, like, we're not there, but that's why I'm interested in the in 2018 I, Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends, because we've never had that before. Like, one vision all the way through. Yeah, and I, I think, to me, like, to, to kind of, like, pull from, like, another, like, fandom, like, Star Wars, the most recent sequel trilogy we got, it, it suffered because of those competing visions to where you had three directors coming on to initially tell the same exact through line, but like having like no like meetings or like conversations about what each character was gonna do, like how they were gonna shape them, like yeah. Uh, and then you eventually ended up having Abrams replacing. Uh, I think Gareth Edwards was originally. The, yeah, the I believe so. The third one, but like still like the that lack of like communication between like Abrams and Ryan Johnson between like seven and eight and nine, like it creates this like really awkward disconnect. And I think that that's what these movies largely suffer from is that you're getting people on here that 
don't really care enough about these this franchise to secure a good movie because this one it just feels like a cash grab and every second of of frame and footage and money spent on this you feel that through and through and it was made in a different time where like you know the word franchise wasn't really thrown around in the 80s these kind of sequels were almost relegated to kind of only really horror and nobody everyone kind of expected each one to make less money as opposed to now with superhero films and other fast and furious like it's almost expected you each one's going to make more money uh, so sequels are a little bit different now than they were back during this time when they were just yeah like like all right who's gonna do the next one let's get this guy who you know dominique gerard who doesn't really give a crap yeah um, and yeah also yeah. too I, I i failed to mention this when we talked about uh halloween four but uh the when you look at halloween one two and three like even the the third one like there is this staple opening with the pumpkin and yep. we largely get away from that in in four and five yep 100 um, where they just ignore it yeah i love that little uh the, the the three pumpkins where it's the first one's a pumpkin second one has a skull in it and the third one's like a digital pumpkin you know because mm-hmm. it's a digital type movie and yeah we do eventually get back to that too but it takes a while do we want to talk about the shape in this one? Yeah, let's talk about the shape. I um I like it more than four, and I uh, shape and mask, but neither blow my mind by any shape of imagination. I I'm kind of the same way with it with you. I think the the mask it they they leaned in to make it a little bit more terrifying and a little, little less like comical, but it's like is not by much. And the performance I feel like with a lot of the this 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 shape to me kind of feels wooden to where like the the last one like kind of like was structured weird but like still carried on what I feel like Dick Warlock was able to do in the second one whereas uh this one I just feel like I don't know he just kind of feels like th- it's this one kind of kicks off the trend of kind of like maybe not the most interactive but just like quite literally stiff performances of the shape yeah uh I'll, I'll give you that i think he might i i never did it i never tried to figure out which movie he has the most screen time but i think this might be one of them the whole driving sequence of him wearing the other guy's mask it just doesn't do it for me it's they, like the things like that where i the demystifying of the shape for me i just didn't really care for when the girl's like kissing his cheek on the when he's wearing the mask and he's clutching the steering wheel and i was like i don't know that's not for me. And I joke about the mask where I say the last one he had like no neck because he was hunched over. It seems like this one, like they did too much neck. Like I feel like like they they, they took the note from the last movie because like this one, his neck goes like real far down on the mask. It just looks a little bit weird. Yeah. Um, and my one of my least favorite shots ever with Michael Myers is when Loomis is talking to him in the house and he's holding the knife and looking up to the left while he's listening to Loomis. I don't know if you remember that specific shot. It's It's in screen grabs all the time. And I just hate it. It's just like, this is Michael like, hmm, let me think about what you're saying for a second. And I'm just like, I don't know. It wasn't. Yeah. The, the scene in particular, when it comes to like the Loomis-Michael dynamic, I just, I can't stand. That's one of the, like, the things that like really grinds and gets under my skin about this movie is like their dynamic specifically. Because it just, it feels like night and day. Like it's either like complete insanity or like, Mommy Dearest is probably like the best way to like gauge their relationship. It's either really loving or it's really insane. Seriously. Uh yeah, that's totally agree. Oh, uh, and also the other thing that this movie kind of plants, which I just find so hilarious to do something like this without a plan, is the introduction of the men in black, where throughout the entire movie we just keep getting shots of a guy 
we we only ever see him from the like the back and bottom down but he's wearing all black black boots black coat and he's just kind of walking around watching the movie like every time he's just like yeah i'm here too and then so the ending of this one you know i would say watch out for spoilers but this movie friggin' stinks uh is michael gets caught he's in jail still with his mask which is one of the funniest shots of all time i don't know why they would put michael in a jail cell still wearing his mask and he's sitting there dangling with his chains like this is so silly and then the man in black shows up with a gun shoots a bunch of people somehow which ignites flames on the bars which is still that that shot is always so silly to me and then uh he breaks michael out and it break it's it's supposed to be this big twist ending just like the last movie like they're clearly just like right another twist like the last movie but these guys have no idea who this man was why he shows up in this movie and no plan on where to take this forward so i just find that insane to even go that route yeah it's also very underwhelming the reveal of who this man oh it stinks is. but yeah it's also but it's also the, the next movie doesn't come out for six years like they go like it's like no one cared like people probably forgot that that even was the twist you know yeah but yeah. I have nothing more to say about this movie. I don't know if you have like anything else, but not I, really. I need to jump into part six. Oh, I, I fucking and they use that. I just hate that they do that. One character does that fake out like three times where he wears the Michael mask and it's supposed to be Michael, and the movie tricks you. And it, they do it three times, and I just find that obnoxious. And like, it's a p- way to pad the script. I was like, this, this fucking sucks. I, I don't like this movie. <laughs> it's, it, it's not. It's also not that that fake out is not also not the first time that we see it. Uh, we see it in part two as well with uh, Ben Schramer. Yeah, when he yeah when he gets end part four when the when the three people play a prank on, yeah. on the sheriff. Yeah, yeah, it's like the fake outs happen so many times. Ah, uh, yeah, it's just, just whatever. This movie is whatever. I would say skip it, <laughs> but it, you do kind of need it to bridge this one and the next one. So it's like it's hard to say skip it, but I don't know what to tell you. Um, it's yeah it's it's strange that like even like the lowest parts of these movies are like still like so crucial to like the actual story and mythology of each of michael myers yeah it's yeah it's it's harder to skip one of these than to skip a different uh slasher i think all right so we're moving on to 1995's halloween the curse of michael myers written by daniel ferrans and directed by joe chappelle this one is starring Donald Pleasance, Paul Rudd, Marianne Hagen, Mitchell Ryan, and for the first time returning, George P. Wilbur as The Shape. Same guy from Halloween 4. So this plot is six years after the events of Part 5. Oh, also, by the way, this was another one. I couldn't get this down to two sentences. It was impossible. This movie's plot is bonkers, just like three. So I did my best. <laughs> this is what I came up with after five rewrites. Six years after the events of part five, 15-year-old Jamie Lloyd, who has been imprisoned by Michael and a mysterious cult, escapes with her newborn child. With Michael in pursuit, Dr. Loomis, Tommy Doyle, and Kara Strode must try to figure out who and what is really behind Michael Myers. That was my best. I don't know. As a fan, what, 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 how would I you describe it? I think that's a pretty good one. Because this plot is incomprehensible. And to what I was saying before, where I think on paper, in every sense of the word, this is a worse movie than Halloween 5. And having said that, I like this movie a lot more than Halloween 5. I mean, it, it's it's hard. Halloween 5 set the bar pretty low, so it's like... But, like, at least it has a beginning, middle, and end. This movie yeah. is, like, a mess. Like, it's a nightmare. And you got the manic energy of both Donald Pleasance and Paul Rudd in this movie to, like, 
really make it entertaining. And this the the scenes in particular where they have him, uh, both of them are some of my favorites in this film. Yeah, it's it is really great. Um, I love I love to play the what if with Paul Rudd in this because I don't know if you know the story, but in this movie he's actually credited as Paul Stephen Rudd, and he oh, shot. Yeah, so he shot this, and then right after this, he shot Clueless. Clueless came out first because that production wasn't a disaster. But he basically shot them both and kind of thought he wasn't going to make it as a like a versatile actor. So he's like, I'll either be like a horror guy or like a comedy guy. And he literally did Paul Steven Rudd, and then he did Paul Rudd on that. And whichever was like more of a success was the route he was going to take as his career. And uh, Clueless was a smash hit, and this movie bombed. So he was then Paul Rudd, the funny guy, for the rest of his time. That's funny. I I, I really wanted him to... And I, this is this is part of the reason why I'm not I, I hold a slight grudge against Ghostbusters Afterlife because if it wasn't for that movie he would have actually returned to play Tommy Waller. Is that true or is that like is that like lore? Did he say that? That, is, that yeah they uh they were really pining for him oh, to get it. That would have been so good. Uh, I think he he tweeted out that like uh he would have been down to return but like the scheduling like. Of when they were shooting Halloween Kills and when they were shooting Ghostbusters Afterlife. I'm so mad. They just conflicted too much. Mainly because I'm not... I like Ghostbusters the movie, but I don't care for Ghostbusters the franchise. So it's like, I'm pretty bummed. That sucks. (laughs) That would have been so good. I love... What's his name? Michael... No, Anthony Michael Hall, right? Yeah, Yeah, I I love him a lot. But yeah, it would have been amazing to see paul rudd return I'm, I'm really excited to see him kind of return or see him kind of take on that role from the franchise and kind of see how the the two of them differ because i honestly like i mean probably they're going to be tonally different takes yeah oh um, yeah i think so this was a very uh a very campy. different paul rudd, a very different oh we didn't even mention so paul rudd is playing tommy doyle from the first movie yeah. so that's kind of what we're what we're talking about so he was the little boy that jamie lee curtis was um babysitting throughout that movie so he's kind of while he wasn't attacked straight on directly he still grew up with the trauma of michael myers and that night it should be worth mentioning too that there are two cuts of these movies that are two completely different films yeah prepare to be confused Uh, listeners if you don't already know this this isn't isn't gonna help but we'll we'll try so there's there's original cut and then there's a producer's cut and the producer's cut's kind of hard to find. I was fortunate enough to get one before it went out of print. Yeah, That's the one that I watched for it's this the one. Only Halloween it. movie like I don't have. Like even the zombies I have both cuts. Like it's the only one I don't own a version of. It's wild because they the, the producer cut does a lot more with uh does a lot more with Jamie Lloyd's character. Yeah. Um it, it also just it seems like a more complete movie. Like it is. Yeah, and we'll explain why, like with the reshoots, but you can it go on. And it gives Paul Rudd a, a a whole lot more to do than just kind of be the the creepy traumatized kid. Yeah, and pays off just a lot of the cult and like mysticism stuff that starts early on that does not pay off in the theatrical version. Um, yeah. I've have I've watched like those cut comparisons before. Um, so I've never actually I've never watched the producers cut in full, but I've watched the scenes on their own, and then I've seen like internet shows do it. But I will say though, it seems like the theatrical cut did up the gore. And the gore is part of one of the reasons I actually kind of enjoy watching this installment a lot. So I'm I'm torn where I'm not sure which one I think would actually is actually better because the swings in the producers cut are wild. They really 
they they go into the cult and uh, and magic angle a lot harder than the version that, that most people have seen. That's why I enjoy the producer's cut is because you do get to see it when you just watch the theatrical cut. Like to your point, like the gore and the gags are are immensely better than than part five, but the cult feels just like so shoehorned in to where it's a point where it's like, huh why is this here but you actually get to like explore it a lot more thoroughly like the reveal of like who the man in black is feels a lot more satisfying in the producer's cut and the last act just bonkers and it's so good yeah the the last act of the producer's cut is wild and um for those who don't know the reason why the version we've most people have seen is feels incomplete is because I guess the producer's cut didn't really play well to test audiences. They decided to go in for reshoots, but unfortunately Donald Pleasance did pass away in between the time of the original shooting and the reshoots. And so they didn't have him for any of the reshoots. And so they had to kind of cobble together an ending because Loomis is a big part of the story without him and with kind of sound bites they already recorded. And it boils down to an ending that makes no sense at all. Like it just, it's, it's so unsatisfying. Yeah. It's, Yeah, but there's a lot of things that I feel feel like are satisfying within this film. Yeah. Are we going to address the fact that this film hints at if it's cousin, if it's niece and uncle, does that this film hints at pedophilia? Yeah. Let's just put that out there. And incest. Pretty strange. Yeah. And incest as well. So it's it's not great. And from what all I can tell, I mean, again, you've seen it more than I have, but doesn't the producers cut confirm that Jamie Lloyd's pregnant with Michael's baby? Because I know it's implied in the theatrical cut, but it's not, they don't actually tell you. Oh, yeah, it's it's 100%. In fact, that's kind oh, of like, that's awful. So, so the last act when, like, Michael's getting ready to, like, sacrifice um, the the final girl whose name's kind of, like, escaping me at the moment. Kara? Sarah? Is that Ka- it? It's Kara. Kara, okay, yeah, yeah. 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 So when when he's getting ready to do that, um, Kara is kind of like, it's like this back and forth between the man in black and Kara. And like Michael's kind of conflicted because like, and she just outright says, you know, it's your baby, Michael. Oh, Jesus. Come on. And it's so weird. But like, honestly, from like the research that like I've done into like other cults, like it's not that far like fetched from like actually being a reality for some people. I understand. And that, but I'm going to counter it with what's Thorn of the Cult's goal? Because if Michael's curse is that he has to kill everyone in his family, how does making another member of his family help that goal? Like in 4 and 5, he's trying to kill his niece. I understand. It's like, she's the last living one. I kill her and I'm good. But then why make a baby with her just to then be like, let's go kill this baby? That's the thing that about this movie that, again... It's not going to make any it's sense. It's a mess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that, we have the little boy, Danny, who apparently hears the voice of the man in black telling him to kill, mm-hmm. who, which is also what happened to Michael when he was six, apparently. Because the yeah, cult that... has been... So we, uh, we basically find out it's like the cult has been behind everything. Like, Miss, Mrs. Blankenship was babysitting Michael that night. Like, it was just like... It's one of those, you know, classic reveals in like a spy movie where you find out... Yeah, I love my Fast and Furious. You find that Charlize Theron was behind every villain we've ever seen in Part Eight. It's it's one of those. <laughs> well, that, like, oh man, that 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 reveal of like uh, Miss Mrs. Blankenship being like, yeah, I was I was uh, I was babysitting him the night that I'm like, did you just really like try to like undo the masterpiece that is Halloween '78? Like, yeah, 
no, that's not okay. I know, yeah. So it's like, what did she like? She do one like some kind of cult magic and unleash the six year old on the house? You know, it's like, come on. Yeah, um, no, like I don't know, like this yeah. this film, it, it has good ideas and it, it's it's satisfying in some of its aspects, but it's it's almost as good as it is problematic. Yeah. I don't mean to equate this to Halloween 3 in quality because I think Halloween 3 is a million times better, but I like this for a lot of the same reasons I like that because it's so nuts. When you're watching it, you're just like, I gotta see what's gonna happen next. Like, I'm not, you're not bored the way you are, you are in 5. So even though at the end of the day, their choices are batshit and they might not be able to make any sense, I still just like, I, I, I kind of like watching it. Like, I'm just like, this is so crazy. And in the theatrical cut, like I said, you do get some pretty wild kills as well um one of my favorite scenes just to quickly pluck it out um that i think really works is when paul rudd's walking around and you see that little girl dancing underneath a tree singing that it's raining it's raining red it's raining red and then she stops and she goes it's warm and then you look up and you see the dj's body in the tree and like so i was like oh I was like that's that's a, that's a halloween moment like that's all i could hope for each of these sequels is to like make one at least one moment that like cements itself in the franchise which is yeah. what I think five lacks, you know? Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, uh, the idea of, like, embodying, like, the um, the DJ in within that is just such a great moment within this one. I love the idea of Kara being, like, attached to, like, the Strode household and, like, not realizing she lives there. Like, the idea of them kind of taking back Halloween from like Haddonfield of being like this like cursed day. I thought again, this film has such interesting things, but probably one of the most interesting concepts this film does. And I can't remember if it's actually in the theatrical cut, but there's a scene where Tommy is explaining to Kara kind of like how Michael operates and why he specifically comes around at Halloween. And it's, uh, it's Thor, the constellation and kind of his connection to it. So whenever the constellation appears, he appears. Yeah. How'd you kind of feel about that kind of connection to like uh, astronomy? I, I dig it. And it goes back to my point earlier of, I could see if I was like, I was five when this came out. So I obviously did not see it, but if I saw this at the time, I could see myself being very put off by it and being like, that's not like my Michael. That's not what this series is supposed to be. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but now again, that we've, shown that this is just a sidestep and we've never gone back to this ever again i can appreciate it more as like another what if of like what could M michael be because at this point michael has just become a character that is like a vessel to explore so many different venues of like the psyche and every filmmaker who takes it goes a different angle with it and you know this is something that's been established over time so now i like that this is like i like this version of michael but I wouldn't have liked it if we've if it's if it only got more mystical from here on out, you know, like, you know, the next movie is H2O and that's going to retcon a lot of things. And I think the fact that that happens makes me appreciate this a little bit more. Yeah, this is the last chapter in the existing timeline of one, two, four, five and six. Yeah. And, and more specifically, four, five, and six. Like it's, it's there. Those are very tied together. Like yeah, it's the, the the ending to this is pretty ambiguous. Where you have the 
again, I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen the theatrical cut, so I don't know if, like, the ending to this film, but, like, Michael gets, like, stabbed, and then it's revealed, like, it's actually the man in black, and they've switched places. I, I think that kind of, like, having Michael walk off into the night as the man in black kind of is a really bold move, but it also has that finality of two's explosion to where I'm like, if this movie, we never got any other movies or they decided that they were going to like reboot it or take it into another uh, direction. I'm really glad that we were got, we got this because it is ambiguous enough to like, leave me like wondering like what if, but it's also satisfying enough to say I- I'm content being here. Yeah, and I I would appreciate that ending if that's the one I got to see, but that is not the ending of the version that I've seen and that most people have seen, and our ending uh, does not make any sense and stinks. Do you not remember it at all? Because I'd love to recap it. I don't. I I I really don't. Oh man! So it's the the reshoots all involve Paul Rudd and Kara fighting Michael because obviously they don't have Loomis. So they basically just fight Michael with like a lead pipe and inject him with these green sur- these syringes filled with a green liquid that we never see where they got it or what it is. They just have it. Um, and it seems to weaken Michael. Paul Rudd then beats Michael to a pulp with a with a pipe until Michael's like oozing juice out of his eyes and stuff. And then they walk then it cuts to the scene from your version of Loomis in front of the car with, with uh Kara and Tommy and the boy in the in the car and Loomis goes you guys leave I still have to take care of something they drive off then it fades out again and then fades into just Michael's mask on the floor with the syringe of green goop next to it and then the sound bite of Loomis screaming from the other ending and then it's over so um, we, we never see I, the man in black he is not in the ending at all it's supposed to be I guess that Michael kills Loomis but for some reason without his mask and it's they use this the in, in your version loomis has the, the thorn symbol on his arm and yeah. starts screaming maniacally so they use that scream and that's it it's, it doesn't make any sense it doesn't finish anything off it doesn't bring up the cult or the man in black it's just like we don't know why michael is it's it's it sucks <laughs> i i would have loved maybe maybe not in like a cinematic format but maybe in like comics or like even a novelization i would love to kind of better understand the origins of the the cult of thorn and kind of like how michael got tied to it and then like what ended up happening after the events of the producer's cut because the idea that michael is still out there as the man in black and also now the leader of thorn is actually sam loomis like that just presents such a unique set of ideas that completely diverts the characters that we've come to know over these last six movies and just takes them into new directions that like i said like halloween takes some bold risks sometimes they work sometimes they don't this movie particularly i don't think it always works but I respect him enough to want to be invested to actually watch at least once. Yeah, agreed. And I'm also kind of excited to show people this one because I know we're always going to have a fun night. Again, as opposed to five, which I just know it's like we're going to fall asleep. Like it's not, it doesn't have the surprises this one has. This one also too, I feel like to your point, I think stands on its own incredibly well. Um, I feel like there's enough context that's given to where you can kind of understand the events of what happens in four and five. Yeah. And still show people this because for the for the most part, like it's very loosely tied. If anything else, it's tied more to the 
first two films than it is the the last two films. That's true. Yeah, and they kind of proved that by killing Jamie so early on. We have to mention just how disappointing it is that they didn't get Jamie Lloyd to return because it's literally the movie takes place the same amount of years later that it is in real life. So she would have been yeah. the perfect age. And I actually, I mean, I do appreciate that the girl they cast isn't actually 15 because I didn't really want to see a, an actually pregnant 15-year-old giving birth to Michael Myers' kid. Like, she's she's older playing younger, so it's a little bit easier for me to watch visually um, than if they somehow got a pregnant Jamie Lord to be running around, uh, Daniel Harris. But I do think it's a shame she didn't get to come back for this one. She was the best part of the last two movies and... Laurie Strode and Jamie Lee Curtis set such a high bar of what a protagonist is in these movies. And Loomis is great, but you do need some other one to be the heart. And Jamie Lloyd was the greatest like substitute for Laurie we could have gotten. And I think part of one of Six's biggest problems is there isn't really a main character. I don't think this movie really knows if it's supposed to be Paul Rudd's story, if it's supposed to be Kara Strode's story, if it's supposed to be Loomis's story. It kind of just like, there's no real antagonist we can grab onto yeah the producers cut i feel like balances that issue a little bit better than the the than the theatrical cut uh-huh. because it equally feels like Kara's story it equally feels like tommy's story and the two kind of intertwine really well into the third act especially with the cult of thorn that we get uh in the last act whereas uh like it like you were saying like the cult of thorn is a largely absent from this film yeah, and the, the theatrical. theatrical. Yeah, yeah, it is. Apparently, there was a scene where there's a scene where in the theatrical where Michael kills a bunch of doctors and nurses. It's it's not explained at all why he does it, but he does it. Um, uh, and apparently, they were originally it was supposed to be cult members, and in the reshoots, they had him reshooted as doctors because they were like, "We're taking the cult out. We don't want to even explain why these people are in robes." So they were all supposed to be dressed in their robes, but instead, they reshot it with doctors and nurses. That part doesn't make any sense. It makes sense. no sense. Well, I don't know why Michael... Apparently, so, yeah. I, I don't even like the idea that Michael's living with this cult for six years with Jamie as a prisoner. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, what's Michael doing during all this time? But then the fact that he just snaps for no reason and kills all the cult members and the movie doesn't explain it for any reason. Okay, he just, like, magically, like, wakes up and has a, a, a conscious all of a sudden. Yeah, it's, like, there's literally <laughs> just one scene. Like, it's just, I mean, it's shot really cool. I actually think it's visually one of the best scenes in the movie. It's, like, they have this strobe effect going. And yeah. um, uh, it's really, uh, I just think it's, like, shot really cool, which is part of the reason I like this movie. I think things are shot really cool. Um, I yeah. think the overall look of this movie, I think it really stands out on its own. Um, I, I found four and five, we didn't really talk about it, but visually, I think they were a little flat for me. They, they weren't really doing much with lighting the way the first movie was. And I think this one actually comes back to it. I just like the overall kind of, it has like this like blue hue to it. And I, I like the way it looks. I like the way it's shot. And I like what they do with the music. Um, I think it's different in the producer's cut, but in mine, they kind of introduce a little bit of like electric guitar and kind of heavy metal aspects to the Michael music. And it's not like, this is not amazing, but it's something. We haven't really been talking about that, but they do kind of make variations on the music in almost all the movies. I think two is probably the biggest departure by going full synth. But um, Oh, I have such thoughts on the music that we'll talk about in the next uh, one. They're sweet. So yeah, they were always messing with Carpenter's original music because it's one of the greatest themes of all time. But so yeah, I liked a lot of how this movie looked. I liked a lot of how it sounded, and I liked the way that the sequences were shot. It's just, it's I'd be lying if I said this story of the version I saw makes you cannot piece it together. This movie is just like 
things just happen and you just roll with the punches. Oh yeah, it makes zero sense. Like, cause like I remember the first time that I saw the theatrical cut and I was like, I like this for Paul Rudd because I'm such a, a huge fan of his work and like you said, like there's a lot of like really cool gags in here and. I just randomly happened to come across the a copy of the producer's cut, and I've been told it was like exponentially better. And I yeah. was just like, "All right, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna dive in and, and check this out." And I've watched it a handful of times, and it's a much, much superior product because it's everything is just so much more cohesive. I, I need to watch it as one whole piece because again, I've only seen the scenes on their own that are that are not in mine. So yeah, I'd love to watch that one day as like a whole piece. I just I can't find it anywhere. Uh, well, I could find it, but it's going to cost me $200 for a used copy, and I'm not really into that right now. I mean, always check your thrift stores, my, my man. Exactly, exactly. Yo, how did you feel about, so the the two Strodes in this are named John and Deborah, and it, the filmmaker said it was supposed to be an homage to John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, but John is literally like an abusive piece of shit who beats his family, oh, and Deborah's man. like a meek put-upon wife who like deals with it, and I'm just like, what are you saying about these two? Like, are you saying like John Carpenter's like a monster and Deborah Hill is just some like pushover lady? Because I'm like, that's not who either of them were. I didn't even realize that. And that's a terrible homage. Like, yeah, like why the two shitty? I mean, like Deborah's not a shitty character in the movie, but she's definitely has no agency or anything. She's just like, no, but she has a great death. Yeah, she does. Let's not forget that, and uh, probably one of the best reveals with John. Uh, no, they are. They're just two. Some of honestly the most unlikable characters, and they feel like stock characters to yeah. me too. Like I would, if I was John Carpenter and I saw that, I would be like, "Are they telling me to go fuck myself? <laughs> like, like what, what? What did I do to these guys?" Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of feels like there's some like uh, hatred there. Yeah, really I mean, there the wasn't. By, by all accounts, they were truly just like we wanted to pay homage, so we named two characters, and then but like that's it. That's all they say in the interviews, and I'm just like, all right, I guess. <laughs> I, I'm almost curious if the characters were named something else, and they just were like, uh, "Let's let's take two character, pick two characters, and name them John and Deborah." Yeah, and they just happened to to come upon like this really toxic marriage. Yeah, they probably just thought like, "Oh, well, John and Deborah were a couple when they made Halloween, so let's pick a couple to name them after," you know. But they didn't think about who that couple was. <laughs> Yikes! Yeah, um, but that's pretty much all I got, other than talking about the shape himself. And uh, I'll let you go first on this one. And the uh, mask. We'll do shape and mask together. Okay, so before I get into that, I would also like to point out to your point about like why this film looks better. This is the first film that actually has a budget behind it and a studio backing it since Halloween 3. Very Even true. Yeah, I did skip over that. Go for it. You talk about toxicity with the characters. Uh, there's a lot of toxicity that's behind the screen. Um, it And obviously the Weinsteins are, uh, with Dimension Films, are kind of hold a lot of the, the rights of this. Yep. Until they sell out to Disney. Um, which is, still blows my mind. Seriously. Uh, but... Yeah, so it, it does look better, and you can kind of definitely see a lot more of that budget come come through in this one, and uh, I really like it, and this film also tells us that uh, test audiences are not always right. Oh, yeah. And oh, they're definitely not always right. <laughs> you will also see a lot more of that when we get into Halloween Resurrection, and to your point also as well, I think that um, this particular shape... I like the mask for this one. Um, I, I always have. I don't know why. I um, do too. I agree. I think it's really I, I good. F- 
Yeah, I feel like I feel like it just it looks a lot more closer to the original film than what we've seen in uh, previous entries. And the shape in this one, I I've seen this a lot more times than I care to admit. Um, <laughs> uh, just because it, for a while this was, I just went through a, a weird obsession phase where I just watched this on on repeat. Uh huh. But yeah, I think that this film in particular, the the shape, I think is just. He's handled really well. I think that there has to be a level of, uh, again, watch the producer's cut. Like, the producer's cut, I feel like there's a lot more emotion involved in this one that, because it's the same guy from uh, part four that he brings in, um, having him return and kind of, like, giving him redemption in this one, I feel like, is is a cool aspect to that one that I didn't know that it was the same exact one. But, Yeah. yeah, it's amazing what you can do if you take out shoulder pads and also... Uh, change out the mask. It, it definitely personifies him a lot better. Big time. And also, I mean, as much as it matters who's playing the shape, it, it, it matters just as equally as like how they're photographing the shape. And I think this one goes back to using him very smart. So say what you will about the cult ruining the mysticism of the shape. He himself is still very much Michael. Like we don't see, he's not driving cars and hanging out like he was in the last movie. Like he really, he shows up only in suspenseful moments. He's, they, they, you know, they put him in the frame in very interesting ways, just like the old movies in this one. So the, the plot might ruin Michael for you, but I think Michael himself stays true to form in this one. George Wilbur definitely does a lot better job here. And I think also the, the lighting aspect of him he's lit a lot better in this movie that he just doesn't come across comical whereas like in previously with like his entry for four like i think a lot of it is not only the mask not only the shoulder pads but also the way that he's lit and shot you don't think that that can make any difference but one of the things that like i really want that really resonated with me on the rewatch of like the hollow the rob zombie halloween films in particular is the way that some of that stuff is shot and lit, it makes all the difference, uh, especially for uh, Michael's like facial structure with the the mask. Yeah, it's it's all it all. It's really nuts. Where I never really thought back in the day that I was just like, yeah, it's just a guy who walks around. It doesn't matter who plays him. But like, especially when you watch him back to back, you see the subtle differences and what why some are better than others. I, I, I warned you. This I warned you. It takes a while, but we're, we're getting there. <laughs> All right, folks, I hope you are enjoying this deep dive that we are dead smack in the middle of. I warned you up top, this is one long franchise with tons to talk about. We just rounded out the end of the Thorn trilogy. Any Halloween fan knows that we're about to start a brand new timeline with Halloween H2O. And if you're not a fan, but you're here with us anyway, we're just going into part seven. And then you got 11, six is about half. So we will be back in a few days with the follow-up to our Halloween franchise deep dive, getting everyone excited for Halloween Kills. Out now in theaters or on Peacock, but see you in theaters.